Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and its sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. Uh, and I've just purchased, and this is true, uh, a copy of the newest Donkey Kong Country for my Nintendo. Uh, it's a game I am dying to play, and it is sitting unwrapped uh, on my top shelf. Uh, waiting for me to turn in my final version of the third Banneker adventure. And until I do it, there will be no Donkey Kong played at my house. Uh, I can just look at it every day and, and, and see it uh, taunting me. But you can go ahead and read Banneker Bones' first adventure, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It's available as a paperback and audiobook. Uh, and the ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so you can get that 24 7. Once you're hooked on the series, come see me for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. And the third, yet to be revealed, Banneker Adventure that will very much be done in the near future because I want to play that game. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I write uh, horror stories for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now a Zombie Story. Uh, it's companion piece, All Right Now a Short Zombie Story. Uh, and of course, The Book of David, which is an extremely adult book. That one's about an atheist that buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving flying saucers. So it's the craziest book there could ever be. Uh, it's five chapters long. It's a serial novel. So if you get when you get your your uh, free copy of Banneker, I'm sorry, Banneker, of The Book of David, chapter one by Robert Kemp, you can download that one for free. No, going in, there's going to be a cliffhanger because that's just the start of the story. I've got four more chapters behind it. We're going for a wild ride. So test the waters if you're comfortable. If you want to go to crazy places with me, The Book of David by Robert Kent is available now. Uh, and also a book I never mentioned on the show, but I should, probably should, is Pizza Delivery. I love that story. It is um, a short novella. Uh, about a pizza delivery that goes as wrong as it could possibly go. Uh, there is a man with an axe involved. There is a whole lot of murder, a whole lot of violence, uh, as as was my experience when I delivered pizzas. Uh, so tip your pizza delivery drivers. You never know what they're walking into. Check out Pizza Delivery. Uh, as always, keep up with what's going on in the show here at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, you can go there. I've got a list of all the guests that are scheduled to appear in the near future. Uh, we'll be back next Saturday with somebody. Uh, your guess is as good as mine who that's going to be, but you can keep track at middlegradeninja.com, and that'll give you some idea. You can also read interviews with editors, publishing professionals, literary agents, uh, and all the authors you'd ever want to read. Uh, fantastic people that uh, I am so proud to have talked to over the years, and you can check out all of those interviews right now for free at middlegradeninja.com. That's it. I've talked myself out of announcements. Let's do this thing. Lauren, hi. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Robert. How are you? I am outstanding. Um, well, I had a bit of a rough morning because it was a writing morning, and I mentioned I've got my, my pressure on with the Donkey Kong game. Uh, and uh, I did everything but right this morning. I cleaned out my washer to make sure it's smelling nice and good. <laughs> I uh, vacuumed the whole house. Mrs. Kent is going to be so pleased when she comes home and she sees all the, the great stuff I've done. Uh, but I'm going to be up late because I still have to hit my word count. <laughs> I think, you know, happy wife, happy life, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I no, because I'll still have the obnoxious voice in my head when I'm trying to go to sleep. You didn't write today. You didn't hit your word count. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get it. We had a bit of a interesting morning over here as well because my uh, uh, my daughter had a delay, a snow delay this morning, which... There was only about an inch of snow on the ground, but apparently that was enough for a two-hour school delay. So, and her friend 
from school unexpectedly had to get dropped off this morning so her mom could go to work. I fortunately, you know, get to work from home, which is delightful and wonderful. So I got double kiddo duty this morning. <laughs> <laughs> work from home while watching two seven-year-olds, that seems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's something I uh, also work from home a fair amount of the week. And that's something Mrs. Can asked me, like, why didn't you get more work? I got this amount of work done. I'm like, yeah, honey, you went to an office. You sat in a quiet place. I had a five-year-old <laughs> the whole time I was trying to get my work from home done. So uh, for esteemed audience who hasn't been stalking you online, preparing for this interview and getting excited about all the things you've done, uh, if you would just give us uh, an overview of your career thus far. Sure. Okay. So my name is Lauren Smolsky. Um, I started off my career back in, I guess, you know, you could say officially started um, in 2013 when I started working at um, Harlequin. So I was an editorial assistant um, reporting to the VP of what we called single title editorial back then, which was, you know, the, the trade fiction imprints that exist now. So I was working on, you know, some books for Mira Books and HQN as well. So a little bit more of the, on the adult side and romance um, and also some of the um, fantasy novels over on Mira by Michelle Sagara and Maria Snyder. <clears throat> so that was where I, you know, sort of got my beginning on my career. I, I interned at, um, Dorchester Publishing prior to that during my master's program. Um, but then after, um, you know, so I started at Harlequin, I slowly worked my way up the ranks over the course of six and a half years with the company, um, ending um, as an associate editor for Inkyard Press, editing primarily young adult fiction, um, a lot of um, YA fantasy and science fiction, but also was breaking into a little more contemporary, a few historicals here and there. Um, and also had worked on uh, my first nonfiction anthology as well, which was a collection of Me Too essays um, from young adult and children's book authors. It's coming out this coming January. Um, and What's so, the title of that one and where can people purchase it? That's called You Too, and you can purchase it wherever books are sold. And it's edited by Janet Gertler, who's a middle grade and young adult author. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, to kill your momentum. I just wanted to make sure we, we properly played. <laughs> yeah. so, so, like I said, I spent six and a half years um, at Harlequin HarperCollins, you know, working primarily for Inkyard Press, formerly called Harlequin Teen. Um, so a lot of my work at Harlequin was on young adult books, but I sort of kept my hand in with some adult projects as well. You know, again, editing Michelle Sagara and Maria Snyder for, um, for Mira. And I also acquired... Um, uh, adult rom-com novelist Summer Heacock, um, who wrote The Awkward Path of Getting Lucky and Crashing the A-List. Um, so I worked on a few um, adult rom-com novels as well for Mira. So my um, the genres I've worked on have been pretty broad across the board. Um, now, about a month and a half ago, um, I officially made my departure from New York, the New York publishing scene and set up my own freelance editorial business, Lauren Smolsky Literary. Um, and so here I am now working from home full time, getting a lot more sleep, no longer commuting, um, which I cannot complain at all about. <laughs> that is extremely exciting. That must be all kinds of empowering and, and wonderful in the morning getting up and uh, um, I, I assume not being a complete master of your uh, destiny because you still have all those things that have to be done, yeah. <laughs> uh, momming and all the rest of it. But that's yeah. got to be an exciting way to approach your day of whatever project you choose to work on today. That's what you're doing. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, you know, it's you would you would think it is kind of like whatever project you choose to work on. But I do have a pretty set schedule um, in the sense that, you know, like I book um, a certain number of clients per month, you know, in terms of what I feel like I can actually get done in that amount of time. 
Um, and I do have deadlines, of course, for all those people, much like I still did when I worked for a traditional publisher. Um, and I got to hit those those marks. So um, there are definitely days when I'm like, oh, I wish I could start this manuscript, but I really got to finish this one first. Um, and I don't just do editing, too. I do a little bit of um, a bit of freelance writing on the side for a couple of um, serialized fiction apps as well. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a mix of things. So well, let's uh, let's start there. What does your uh, day look like these days? Um, so typically getting up um, in the morning and um, getting the munchkin off to school. She starts school at 835. That's when I have to drop her off. Um, and then I usually come back here and kind of, you know, eat some breakfast, get settled in with a pot of tea. And, you know, my day from there, you know, it's it sort of it can vary day by day, depending on the day of the week. Um, you know, three out of the five days, my daughter is in aftercare until six. So I'm usually, you know, here at my desk doing, you know, either an edit or writing some scripts or something like that, you know, throughout the course of the day, occasionally getting up to, I don't know, I'm doing the dishwasher or do some laundry. Because, um, <laughs> you know, that's nice to have that flexibility. Um, every now and again, the cat comes and interrupts and wants to walk across my keyboard or sprawl on my lap. Um, so those are nice little um, additions to the day. Um, and then a couple of days a week, you know, my day ends a little bit earlier um, with my daughter has dance class. And I also um, co-lead a Girl Scout troop, um, her Girl Scout troop, the Brownies. Um, so uh, we have those meetings on Fridays. So <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a full week. Yep. Uh, my sister was a Brownie. <laughs> That's a great time. Good for good for you. Good for the Brownies to have you there on, on Fridays. And what a wonderful thing that's completely separate from work, I assume, to go off and be able to do uh, at least part of your time. Yes, no, absolutely. Although um, probably starting in February, I think it is, um, my entire living room is likely to be wall-to-wall -wall Girl Scout cookies because I am, as a co-leader, the cookie mom. So once <laughs> sales kick off, um, FYI, folks, you can totally <laughs> order them online these days, apparently, as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I will be uh, yeah just drowning in cookies in a couple of months. <laughs> will you be selling some online as well? Um, my daughter will have um, a... Uh, um, what's it called? Um, they have like a web, they have websites these days. The girls can set up like an online shop, essentially. Um, the shipping is absolutely exorbitant though. So just fair warning on that. It's like $9 or something like that to get the cookies shipped. But some people are like really desperate for them. So. Oh yeah. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> a small price to pay. I know. <laughs> Where they get me is, uh, when this is tip for all the, the Girl Scouts listing, if they're uh, outside a grocery store and I'm on my way to buy, you know, healthy, nutritious, non-cookie food. Uh, and I see sweet little girls looking just so hopeful. Who can walk by that and say no? <laughs> so, all right, let me see what I've like, got in my wallet. You have all that nostalgia associated with those Thin Mints and the Samoas and everything like that. You can't just walk by without any cookies. So. Well, I'll buy a box of uh, my wife's favorites uh, and then... Uh, I will sometimes buy a box and give it away. Uh, when I was working in an office, I would take it in and be office hero and say, here's a box of Girl Scout cookies. You're welcome. I just had to buy them because I couldn't tell that little girl no. <laughs> true. They are very hard to resist. So we'll be doing some booth sales definitely next, in the coming months. So Jumping ahead, just uh, thinking about it. I know that one of your hobbies is making um, uh, cupcakes. Oh, yes. uh, and different kinds of recipes for cupcakes and that you've been an office baker um, most of your life. So I'm always curious, what is what does being the office baker do for your career, you think? <laughs> I'm not really sure if it did anything necessarily so much as like pave the way for making more friends, I guess, like in the office. You know, a couple of us, you know, um, were bakers and would trade off recipes and so on and so forth. Um, uh, at Harlequin, we actually had a... Um, 
uh, twice yearly bake off. We had one at Halloween and one at Valentine's Day where we'd all bring in, you know, the baked goods and everything. And they would do a blind taste test and voting and all of that. I won a couple of those um, for either best, uh, we used to do best tasting and also um, the ones that looked the best, like in best appearance, I guess, or whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, I don't know if it contributed to my career at all, but my coworkers really liked it. One year I made a pinata cake for my boss that she was just over the moon about. So, What's a pinata cake? Uh, so a pinata cake is, um, it's usually a multi-layer cake and you cut out part of the middle and fill it with either sprinkles or candy or something along those lines. Then when you cut into it, like all of the candy explodes out of it, basically. <laughs> That's a thing? <laughs> yeah, wow. I made one daughter's birthday last year she um she freaked out like I, I filled um a, a very decadent chocolate cake with m&ms and as I was cutting into it I have this hysterical video of cutting into it and I was like oh it feels like there's something weird in here and the other kids were like what is it what's that sound ew it sounds weird and then opening up the cake and all of a sudden the m&ms spill out and they're just like ah! freaking <laughs> I'm gonna check out YouTube videos of that later. I've got to see a cake that explodes candy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> and uh, so, of the uh, different types of new and unusual cupcakes you've made, what's the most delicious combination you found thus far? Oh gosh, um, I've made some really good ones. Um, I did this um, this chocolate covered strawberry cupcake um, for Valentine's Day a couple of years ago, which was a chocolate cake. Um, filled with a strawberry compote and then a strawberry buttercream and a little bit of chocolate ganache drizzle on top, um, which was delicious. And um, Irish car bomb cupcakes, which are like, you know, a Guinness chocolate cupcake um, and then a uh, whiskey ganache filling and a Bailey's buttercream frosting, which is delicious. Um, and then one more uh, chocolate salted caramel cupcakes are very delicious and fantastic. Um, and I'm actually going to be trying my hand at a red velvet cake for the first time this weekend for a friend's birthday. I've never made red velvet before, so. I know well, it sounds like uh, the pressure's on now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Her boyfriend told me either red velvet or lemon, and I was like, well, I don't really like lemon cakes, so we're going to go for the red velvet and see how it turns out. Is it uh, something that's uh, next level uh, to make red velvet, or is it just not something you've uh, wanted to do thus far? I just don't often, like, you know, it doesn't really occur to me to make it, but essentially red velvet cake is really just a chocolate cake with red food coloring. Really? Yes, that's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> and with a cream cheese frosting. It's, that, that's really what distinguishes it more than anything else is the cream cheese frosting and the distinctive red color, but it's literally just food coloring. <laughs> I'm going to drop that fact uh, at a dinner party next time I see somebody eating red cap velvet and I'm going to blow their mind about, yeah, I know stuff. <laughs> That's great. Yep. Let's, uh, let's start with, uh, well, we, we've started. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your early career because this fascinates me is how people get into editing in the first place. And I know that people that listen to the show want to know um, how does how does an editor become an editor? Who, who are these people I'm going to be working with? And also, if I wanted to edit, how might I do that? Um, so I know I read in your bio that it wasn't until your junior year that uh, people uh, watching the video can see that you've got your Ithaca flag uh, flying proudly in the background. But it wasn't until your junior year that you decided that uh, you wanted to pursue a career in publishing. So what were you do? What were you interested in prior to that? And what clicked that junior year that said, "Oh, publishing. That's what I should do." So I um, went into college um, as a journalism major, thinking that I was going to be the next great political journalist. Woo, that was going to be like my big thing. But 
um, back in college, I, you know, started taking poli sci classes and, you know, was like, the government is corrupt. I hate politics. Um, you know, which my views have obviously evolved a bit since then. You know, we won't go into that discussion, obviously. Um, but well, I mean, what, my... it's corrupt, but nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was more than just like, you know, my like very naive 19 year old self was just like, oh, politics. I can't stand politics. And now I'm obviously much more invested because I'm an adult and I understand that that's important to be invested in. So um, in any case, um, I also decided very early on that I wasn't really super um enthusiastic about the journalistic style of writing like the inverted pyramid and all of that it was so dry and i was always a really big reader of fiction like especially young adult novels um and loved books to death um but i was on a communications scholarship a full a full ride actually and so there was really no option to like kind of jump out of my major and it was in most line with what i you know kind of thought i wanted to do with my life so I started taking um, some English classes instead and, you know, was actually going to um, uh, go for teaching and get my master's in teaching after I finished my journalism degree. I was kind of all set to do like a fifth year that would have gotten me my master's to teach English. Um, but uh, my junior year of college, um, the scholarship program that I was part of, they actually do a shadowing trip to New York City um, for the junior class that allows you to go and follow a professional in your chosen field around for a day and get a sense of, you know, what that's like and, you know, what, you know, that your career might look like and to see if you are going to enjoy it. Um, and I was completely at loose ends and didn't under, didn't really know what I wanted to, you know, to do for the shadowing trip because my, my scholarship advisor was like, well, you're not going to do, be doing journalism. So what, what do you want to do? I'm like, can I go to a school? Is that an option? He's like, well, you love to read. We know somebody at a publisher. Why don't you go like follow around an editor for a day? And I was like, oh, okay. That's, that's, that sounds cool. So I wound up um, shadowing a production editor at Simon and Schuster for that, um, for that day and quickly realized, I was like, oh my God, these are my people. I've like come home. This is what I want to do with my life, um, you know, and because it, it never occurred to me as much as I loved reading that there were people who made books and that actually edited them and, and made them into the books that, you know, sit on our shelves like that never occurred to me that that was an actual job that I could pursue and go for. Um, so after that, you know, I um, decided to pursue my master's in publishing, which you know, looking back, I think was a very erroneous decision to make because um, it was very expensive and didn't necessarily yield the results that one would um, hope for. If I were to give advice to anyone who's trying to get into the publishing industry, I would say, um, don't go get your master's, don't necessarily go to the, do all those certificate programs because it's not going to, you know, A, make you any more money and B, it's not necessarily going to get you the connections that you want. Um, I you would show up to an interview and they say, I'm master's, come right in. Yeah, right let's clear a desk for you. <laughs> I know. Ironically, when I was when I you know because I did I ended up doing an internship, which I did get as part of um, my master's program. I did have you know I, the the resources within the master's program gave us some connections um, to network with people in house to be able to get internships. Um, so that was helpful. But I also don't necessarily think that it was crucial. Um, I think I probably could have eventually made those connections on my own. Um, to be able to get internships and stuff. So internships are your most viable um, source of getting you know, the experience um, to work at a publisher. But I remember going into my, um, my interview at Harlequin, um, my first interview there um, for the editorial assistant job that I eventually got. And I remember somebody telling me like, you know, you have, it seems like, it seems like you have a lot of experience for an editorial assistant. And I was like, I have a master's in one internship. What do you want from me? Like, are you serious right now? 
So, and, you know, but, but it was interesting because she gave me some really good advice um, in the sense that she's like, you know, it takes a long time to climb the ladder in the publishing industry and to work your way up to a point where you're going to be like a full-fledged editor and acquiring books and actually working on your own stuff. So you have to know that, you know, to be patient with that. And I was coming in a little bit later, I think, than most editorial assistants because I had done that master's program and I had also taken some time away from New York. So I was, um, and it wasn't even that old, I was like 25. <laughs> so, but when your average editorial assistant is coming right out of college at like 21, 22, you know, and I was like 25, 26, um, I was a little bit, I guess, more senior, if you could say that. <laughs> well, I know that because I've talked with editors past that uh, I've been told that you're looking at somewhere between 20 and $30,000 for an editorial assistant job around that time. Is that and about the ballpark of what you were looking at? I think most editorial assistant salaries are starting in more like the 30,000 ballpark in New York, um, anywhere between 30 and 35, depending on which house you're starting at. I know I started at, sorry, Harlequin, 33,000, six and a half years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it's standard and on par for the industry. It's a, That's one of the things that I really wish um, could be addressed in a much bigger way um, throughout the entire industry is the severely underpaid <laughs> um, aspects of many, many areas within the publishing industry, but particularly in editorial, because the job that we do is so very specific and requires a very, um, a, high, a highly cultivated skill set. Um, and it's not something that everyone can do. And without us, there wouldn't be a product to actually sell necessarily. I mean, you have the authors, of course, they're the biggest contributor creatively to the project, but without the editors to, you know, take out all those typos and to craft the stories into something that's really saleable and marketable. Um, you don't have a book to put out there. So it's a little well, bit you do. You just shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's just, it seems a little criminal that, you know, editors are as underpaid as they are. That always blows my mind. Cause I, I don't know how to get by on $33,000 in a small Indiana town. Uh, let alone Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the other part of it is like expecting, you know, your, talent pool to also live in the, one of the most expensive cities in the world on that level of pay. So when you work in uh, another job when you, when you started or. Nope. I had a roommate, you know, which was helpful. Um, you know, my student loans were deferred for a little while, which was also helpful. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that was largely, yeah, just kind of making it work with a roommate, you know, and I eventually, um, about a year after I started at Harlequin, my husband and I moved out to Connecticut. He was already living out here. We were doing long distance. Um, we weren't married at that point. Um, and so, you know, I moved out to the suburbs, which, you know, was definitely cheaper in terms of rent and all of that, but I was paying an arm and a leg to commute. So it really wasn't that much different in terms of my cost of living expenses. So, but I was sharing it with somebody else here, which was helpful. And so now you're, uh, you're in Connecticut most of the time, but obviously a, a a short, uh, a short commute to the city if you need to get back. Yeah. Um, and this is something that's uh, kind of a hobby horse of mine because I want to see publishing continue to move out from the country. I don't think it's good that it's all headquartered with the same similar types of people within the same uh, 2.5 miles, I think, uh, is, the, is, is the square mileage of where publishing is located. Yeah. I, I come out move move out let's get let's get some ted unabomber uh, ted kaczynski unabomber types in a shack in montana let's have one publishing house there let's do some more in indiana here let's go nuts let's uh, let's get everybody involved um what are some things that you can only do in new york um that that you wouldn't be able to do working in connecticut or someplace else 
I mean, I guess the one benefit, you know, to publishing being in New York is is networking in that sense, um, you know, in that a lot of agencies, of course, are also located in the city by necessity, you know, because we are, of course, all the publishers are down there. Um, so it is really easy to be able to, you know, pick up and, you know, go out to lunch or a coffee or drinks like that with an agent, you know, like during the course of the workday or just after um, and be able to, you know, develop those relationships and everything. But at the same time, I mean, that's not necessarily something that you can't do over the phone, you know, or over Skype as you and I are doing right now. You know, I mean, there's there's no reason why we can't cultivate those relationships in different ways, you know, from different places. Um, and I think that also, you know, <clears throat> speaking to your point, like if we were to expand outside of the, you know, immediate New York City area in terms of where a lot of the agencies and where a lot of the publishers are located, that opens up, you know, the talent pool to a lot of people, especially from marginalized communities, to be able to actually participate and, you know, be part of the publishing process. And in that sense, you know, I think what would follow is if you have more marginalized representation within the publishers themselves, within the publishing professional community, you also will end up acquiring and cultivating more marginalized authors and voices um, and putting more diverse books on the shelves. That makes <laughs> sense to me. Uh, let's do it together. Let's start a, let's start sure. a program, make I publishing exactly <laughs> across America. Out of New York, make it more accessible. <laughs> And, and not Ted Kaczynski types. I have no idea what, what comes into my mind sometimes with these things I say. <laughs> I have no idea why that would be beneficial to publishing, but more people certainly would be. <laughs> part of this, too, is that, you know, I mean, I, I can't see how publishers themselves wouldn't benefit, you know, A, because their overhead costs would go down significantly if they weren't located in New York. I mean, the cost of renting these office spaces is obscene. Um, and so many of the publishers are moving over to open floor plans um, to, in order to save a little bit of money on office space and all of that. But I don't know if, you know, for all those other editors out there and even authors as well, like, I don't know anybody who edits or writes well in a common open office floor plan. I mean, if I don't have like veritably complete silence in my own space with nobody to bother me and come up and bug me, like it is very hard to get into the zone of editing. So a lot of my editing was not done in the office because it just was too hard to focus. I would either lock myself in, a, in like a small conference room um, so I could, you know, get some quiet time on my own, or I would just do the editing here at home. And then I assume you've got your, your, your long commute that might be good for some, some editing or not I'm, so much. It was before I had a kid. <laughs> and then I was just so exhausted all the time that it was largely for sleeping. Um, but yeah, I used to commute about an hour and 45 minutes each way to work. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good time for, I, I assume you're not driving, you're riding or are you driving? I was riding the train. I would drive like five minutes down the street to the train station park. And then I was either um, Metro North or subway all the way the rest of the way. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm wondering if there won't be a generation of editors uh, that uh, when they get a little bit older, all have tinnitus because they're all wearing ear, earphones to block out <laughs> the open office plan so they can focus on their writing oh, <laughs> or editing. <laughs> so, okay. Starting with uh, Harley Quinn as an editorial assistant, what does that look like? What does your day look like then? So I think my experience was maybe a tiny bit different than some other folks because I was assisting um, a VP who only had a couple of authors actually on her docket. So I don't think I was doing quite as much 
as some other editorial assistants in the sense of, you know, like doing as much of like the scheduling and the copy requests and, you know, um, working on art fact sheets and editing and so on and so forth. Um, a lot of, you know, the things that I did for my boss at the time was, you know, I did all of that for her authors, but also um, was managing her calendar, um, answering her phones, doing her expense reports, you know, like all of those things that you would do for a high level executive um, as an executive assistant. That's essentially what I was doing is I was balancing the responsibilities of being an editorial assistant with also being an executive assistant. So it was interesting um, trying to balance those two things. And I will say that, you know, even though my experience as an editorial assistant was maybe a little bit outside of the norm, um, it also gave me some unique opportunities because I was working very closely with a VP. So when there were opportunities that came up, you know, such as like an editor who left the company and orphaned a few authors, and there wasn't, you know, necessarily a readily available person to work on them, um, especially somebody who was really interested in fantasy the way that I was, um, you know, those authors wound up being assigned to me because my boss felt that I was highly capable and that I was able to kind of, you know, jump in and work on them. And, um, you know, that I'm not that opportunity would have been available if I hadn't been so, I guess, visible within the company because of my association with the VP. Um, and being able to work on those authors very early on positioned me well to move up the ranks and eventually um, up to assistant editor and then associate and acquire my own list. Well, that plus the amazing cupcakes that <laughs> <laughs> have the office buzzing and talking. Bribery, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming that's... Uh, uh, editorial assistant for the VP. I'm assuming that's not nine to five. The work stops when you leave the office. Uh, what, what kind of days are you pulling down at that point? You know, actually, it was it was more nine to five than you might have imagined. Um, and in part because um, my boss herself had three kids and she was commuting to and from New Jersey. So she came into the office around 830 and she was out the door by five o'clock every day to catch her train home. So it wasn't, you know, necessarily that she was asking, she never really asked me to pull hours beyond when she was in the office um, or if I had to leave before she left, that was never a concern for her. She was very flexible and kind of fantastic um, about that sort of thing. But it was actually later on in my career, once I was out of the assistant role that I felt like um, my job was less of a nine to five. It was once I had my own list of authors that I really started to you know, have to work beyond those 40 hours. <laughs> So, I mean, it was probably uh, when I was an assist when I was an assistant editor is, is probably when it started because I was still juggling the assistant work for the VP and also at the time for the um, uh, editorial director of Harlequin Teen. That's the two people that I was assisting at that point when I became the assistant editor. Um, and so I was balancing probably four or five titles of my own um, with assisting the two of them on their books as well. And of course, the VP schedule and the expense reports and all of that. Um, so those were definitely probably about 60-hour work weeks. I hope they were paying more than 33000 a year by that point. <laughs> no. Well, I think I was at 40 at that point, <laughs> thereabouts. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until about a year or so into that that all of those new overtime regulations started becoming a thing. Um, you know, it, it, Obama, I think, passed different um, overtime thresholds. And so all of a sudden, publishing was like, oh, I guess we're going to pair people overtime now. So, so that became a, a chip on the table, which was really great um, to have as an option. But, you know, it was not always easy, not necessarily for me, but I know just in, in general for editorial assistants and assistant editors to be able to get approval for those overtime hours outside of the office because publishing in general has this sort of 
mindset of if you want to move up and you want to move ahead, um, you've got to do that extra work outside of office hours and largely on your own time. If you want to acquire as an assistant, you've got to read your own submissions on your own time outside of the office. So that was very much, that's kind of just across the publishing industry in general. That's sort of the mindset. I mean, that's kind of a mindset in a lot of industries, right? I think, of course, lawyers, uh, law is famously like that. Uh, the medical profession, um, less so, but you still got to do plenty of work outside. Um, heck, I uh, did financial advising and it did not stop nine to five. That was. Uh, <laughs> Here's the thing. How much did I get paid? <laughs> financial advising did better than 40000 a year. Yeah. <laughs> we were all right. And all that. Yeah, they make a lot more than 40k a year. So. And I apologize for, for being so crass. I, I, I know it's uh, rude to talk money, but uh, when we're talking about just publishing in general, I appreciate you being so so forthright about that. Yeah. Um, it's an issue in the industry that really I, I think desperately needs to be corrected. And it's, it's you know, definitely one of the reasons why I decided to launch my own business and to shift out of, you know, the normal traditional publishing path, because it just, it's going to be more lucrative in the long run, you know, and I think that, that a lot of editors are choosing a very similar path and agents as well, you know, it's, it's just that the money isn't there in traditional publishing, and there's not much incentive to stay and kind of burn yourself out um, for what we get paid. I mean, isn't there like a package where once you become Grand High Pumba editor, whatever the, the title is, uh, that then you get a golden parachute and uh, unlimited retirement and all that kind of stuff? I mean, that's the thing is that the other the other benefits, at least, you know, where I was at were pretty good. You know, like like vacation packages were good. We had unlimited sick days, which was fantastic, um, you know, because when you're an open office floor plan, you're always getting sick. Um, <laughs> of course, because the germs are just going everywhere. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. you know, and the retirement was definitely competitive. So they, they made up for it in other ways. Um, but yeah, that just, you know, the, the, the day to day living, you know, it's 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 tough on that, you know, low amount of money. So um, wanna... it's, not up, it's not until you get to be like an a, a executive editor, editorial director that you actually break into the six figures. So, okay. I want to uh, want to talk a lot about uh, the freelance work that you're doing now and that you're available to and that esteemed uh, audience can find out more about how to submit to you and get that going. Uh, but I want to ask just a couple more questions about your time at Harlequin because I think that'll give us some some idea of all the knowledge that you're bringing to your new business. Um, but I'm always curious trying to figure out what the different titles within an, uh, an editing house mean. What's the difference between an ed assistant editor and an editorial assistant or are those synonymous? And how does that different than actually doing editing? So an editorial assistant is, you know, like your base level. It's, it's, you know, the, your entry level position It's where, you know, most people come into the industry. Um, and largely when you're an EA, as we call them, um, you're doing mostly the work for your boss, you know, like you're, you're working on their titles, you're helping write cover copy, do our, um, you know, come up with, um, you know, title, title fact sheets for launch and things like that, helping, you know, um, we call them artifact sheets in terms of filling things out for the covers, cover briefing documents, that sort of thing. Um, so doing a lot of, you know, like kind of the detail work to free up your boss to do the actual editing. Although in some cases, you know, like bosses will occasionally pass off an edit to their assistants um, to work on if it's, you know, a book that maybe there's some time for them to be able to like review it after the um, assistant has worked on it or to use it as kind of a mentorship opportunity where they kind of co-edit and work on the book at the same time um, so that the assistant gains some additional editorial knowledge. Um, but largely it is just supporting your boss and freeing them up to be able to do the day-to-day -day editing. A lot of it's reading submissions, of course, you know, like honing your eye in that regard. 
it's generally not. And so the, the next level up from that is assistant editor or AE. Um, and it's generally not until at least that point <clears throat> that you're allowed to start acquiring. And at most houses, I think it's not until the next level up associate editor that you're really allowed to start acquiring your own list. At some houses, associate editors are still actually doing a lot of admin and assistant work. Um, I was not, fortunately, like that was not my experience. Um, but I know that was fairly unique. <laughs> so. so, okay. So if you're acquiring as an editorial assistant, is that just, uh, I, I like this book, let's do it. Or is it, let's pass it up to the committee uh, and get people to weigh in or. Yeah, it is definitely a process. I mean, so the way it worked at Harlequin was um, <clears throat> if I read a book and I really liked the submission and everything, I would bring it forward to my boss. Um, if she would get, if she got on board with it and really enjoyed it as well, um, we would then bring it forward to what we called the single title acquisition meeting. Um, so that was a meeting with, you know, the VP of the publishing group, you know, a bunch of other editors, um, with our subrights division, our publicity division, um, with the marketing group as well. Um, our, our marketing group actually had a pretty major say um, in our acquisitions because um, they, if they didn't feel like the book was saleable or if they had enough of a hook to market it, it would be a no in terms of acquiring. <clears throat> um, so it was a, it's a very collaborative process with a lot of cooks in the kitchen, if you will, um, in terms of what they decided to acquire. Um, so... Yeah. And if, you know, you made it through the gauntlet and, you know, everybody said, yeah, we love this book. We want you to buy it. We want you to acquire it. Um, then it was the money question. How much are we going to pay for it? You know, like, are we going to give this like crazy six figure advance, which is pretty rare. Um, or are we going to pay like, you know, 15 to $20,000 advance for this debut author, which was much more the norm. Um, so that's more or less how the process worked. And again, you know, I think that most publishers, um, and that was even my experience at Harlequin, you know, like as an editorial assistant, you're not going to be given much, you know, bandwidth to be able to acquire on your own. Like you have to have like a really significantly amazing project to get them to be on board with an editorial assistant acquiring. So it's a little bit easier as you get up to being more of an assistant editor. That's when you, they start to let you broaden your list a little bit more. Um, and then as an associate, I no longer had any admin duties and it was my, you know, prerogative, like it was part of my, you know, job responsibilities to acquire and edit a full list. So at the time that I left Harlequin, um, I'd been an associate editor for two years and I was responsible for, um, acquiring and editing between 12 and 15 titles per year. Wow. So um, acquiring and editing, uh, 12 to 15 titles. So how many books are you doing in a month then? Uh, I, I assume that's about uh, well. Uh, take us through the process. Let's let's go back to you mentioned the awkward path to getting lucky. I didn't realize you edited that book. Yeah. Uh, when I reached out to you, that's a fellow Indiana author who I always try to hype. Yeah. Uh, Summer Heacock. We actually um, uh, knew each other in high school. Uh, oh. We went saw the Phantom Menace together. Uh, so that's uh, way back in the day. Uh, so Summer's book. Um, how does that get acquired? And then what's the process from when that's just a submission to where that becomes uh, a full-on book that's available everywhere? So, and actually in the case of the awkward path to getting lucky, that's kind of a funny story um, because uh, so Summer's agent had originally submitted, um, well, her former agent, because she switched agents in between. Um, <clears throat> so her former agent had previously submitted um, a different book to an editor at Mira Books. Um, and, uh, you know, it was it was a very close call. Like the editor really liked it, but couldn't, I think it, they, she couldn't get it past the acquisition committee or couldn't get it past her boss. I'm not really sure exactly how, how that went down. Um, but in any case, when Summer switched agents and had the awkward path um, out on submission, um, 
it came, it, originally they tried to submit it to that other editor who was actually on maternity leave. Um, so they submitted it to somebody else who then shortly after left on maternity leave as well. So it went through like three different editors who were like either out on leave or, you know, like something like that before it finally landed in my inbox. Um, <clears throat> and I remember at the time, um, her agent was friendly with another colleague of mine, um, not on the same imprint, who was actually on the, the teen imprint. And he was like, my friend, my agent friend has like this, you know, book on submission with you. I know the pitch sounds kind of weird, um, but you definitely need to read it. Like, you know, do me, do me a solid and like take a look at it. And so I opened it up and I was like, God, this pitch is so bizarre. Um, but, you know, when I started reading it, uh, it was just laugh out loud, hysterically funny. I was sitting there in my cubicle, just like cackling to myself and all of my colleagues are like, what is going on? Why is she laughing in her cube? Um, <clears throat> so it was very disruptive for the entire day because I couldn't stop laughing at this manuscript that I had. Um, and so immediately, you know, like forwarded it to my boss. Again, the, the premise was a little bit, um, <clears throat> sort of, I guess, off the walls in the sense that like, it's, it's about a middle grade theme show, but go ahead and say, say the premise. Okay. Why not? <laughs> We're going to be sex positive people. Okay. Um, <laughs> so the book is about, um, a woman who is having, um, some women's health issues. You know, she uh, has a condition called vaginismus, um, which makes having sex very painful. And she's been dealing with this for several years. Um, and so she and her, you know, longtime boyfriend wind up breaking up because she feels like she's kind of holding him back and constraining him. And so she uh, decides to cut him loose for a little while while she deals with this little problem because she's approaching her 30th birthday and um, she wants to get it taken care of before she turns 30. Um, now, she works in a cupcake shop, which, of course, presents all kinds of really fun and wonderful um, opportunities um, in a rom-com for, you know, various uh, shenanigans. Um, there are, you know, phallic cupcakes involved at times. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, so in any case, she winds up... Um, I'm sorry, my cat just jumped up on the desk. He wants to say hi. I'm surprised mine hasn't made a guest appearance <laughs> this episode so far. Um, so in any case, um, she winds up meeting this physical therapist and um, starts a relationship with him. And of course, you know, her condition resolves itself and so on. And uh, they wind up happily ever after. Sorry to spoil the book for y'all. Um, <laughs> a romance that ends happy what yes, exactly. yeah, but it's hysterical and you definitely pick it up if you you know anybody who's in the adult part of the audience like definitely pick it up it's really fun so anyway i fell in love with it um brought it forward to my uh my editorial director at the time she was a little bit leery but again it was really funny and the tone was great so we brought it forward um, the acquisition team felt much the same way. They were like, this is kind of a very bizarre premise, but we don't have really a lot of rom-coms on the list. And rom-com seems to be like having an emergence now. So let's take a chance. And we did. And so we published it and we published a second book from her, um, which was, that, uh, let me uh, slow down just a little bit. Cause I always imagine that, uh, that Superman scene of the people in mirrors say guilty, guilty. As you stand with the hula hoop with your manuscript, how many people are, are, are weighing in on this book to let it go forward? about probably 15 or 20 people so and it's all done over video conference for us too especially because um so the you know the bulk of the editorial team is actually in new york for harlequin but harlequin was originally a canadian company so the bulk of our like marketing folks and our art directors um a lot of our leadership team they're actually up in toronto 
So we did a lot of our, um, all of our acquisition meetings and a lot of our meetings in general were done over video conference. So I'm sitting there in a room with a couple of other people down in the New York office, pitching to all these people over a video in Canada and being like, please like my book. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, you asked, you know, like, how does a book get from, you know, acquisition to publication? Sorry, it was a very long winded, like, description of Summer's book and the acquisition process. Um, so once a book is actually acquired, um, generally the first thing that I do is um, I will reread it um, another time, you know, or yeah, gen generally we'll, we'll do another um, read through the book um, so that I can draft up what's called um, an edit letter. So um, this um, service is actually akin to what I offer now, which is called a manuscript assessment. Um, or an editorial assessment. It's a like, you know, quick read through the manuscript um, to give a broad strokes assessment um, of the problem areas, um, different things you need to do with like the overall structure of the story. Um, if there's significant plot holes that need to be filled in and explained, if the world building is feeling a bit thin in certain areas, um, if the character development isn't quite there and on par, if the romantic relationships don't feel earned um, and, and, you know, properly seated, um, all different things, you know, like those very broad strokes um, parts of the story. Um, you're doing an assessment of those areas and providing feedback to the author so that they can get started on revising and trying to fix those really big picture issues before we dig down into like the nitty gritty. Um, and you're doing that and you've got assistants weighing in as well. How many people are, are weighing in on, on that portion? Just me. Okay, well, that, that sounds, sounds like all you need because it's a fantastic yeah, book. Literally, you know, like, focus <laughs> from start to finish, honestly, like, you know, every now and again, I would, um, you know, potentially ask a member of my team, you know, to take a read if I felt like there was an area that um, was outside my area of expertise or if I wanted an extra set of eyes on or something like that. Um, you know, like, uh, for instance, I had a member, um, if I had a character who was gay and I thought that, you know, like I wasn't necessarily 100% qualified to do, um, that character editing that character justice you know like i had another member of my team who was able to like take a look at it for me or we'd send it out for a sensitivity read um during the process you know to get to make sure that we were portraying a char those characters authentically um you know so but but large by and large you know the development of the story was you know kept in my hands <laughs> mine and the authors of course um so after that initial manuscript assessment um period and that first revision letter um most authors at that point are ready to go in what's called um, a developmental edit. Um, and so that stage is, you know, still looking at, you know, some big picture issues and making sure that those initial big picture issues that I identified in the first letter um, have been addressed enough, um, but dealing more with like scene by scene, page by page specifics. Um, and so going through and making sure that, you know, like if there's a particular moment that I feel like, you know, could use a little bit of jazzing up or, you know, maybe, they're doing more telling than showing in a particular area. They're kind of summarizing instead of actually allowing us to live in that moment with the character. Um, or if there's a section where the dialogue is just very, very heavy and there's not a lot of, you know, um, character reactions or internal thoughts and motivations coming through, um, I'll, you know, highlight that and say like, we really need to get more into the main character's psyche and their mindset and how they're reacting to this. Um, if the emotional undercurrents feel like they're not deep enough and they're not being fully explored. Um, so the developmental edit is like, you know, basically still looking at those big picture issues, but on a page by page basis and making sure that those are, you know, being sufficiently fleshed out um, throughout the entirety of the story. 
Um, and of course, you know, like identifying any additional like new issues that might have cropped up like during the first stage of revisions. Um, and so that's another service that I offer um, now as a freelancer. And then um, after the author finishes those revisions, generally, oh, I'm sorry. And as part of that developmental edit, um, not only do you get notes within the manuscript itself, but usually there's an additional like revision letter, an edit letter that goes along with that, that kind of highlights, you know, okay, in the manuscript, I have all these specific notes on like particular pages, but you know, on the in the edit letter, there's also like more big picture stuff. And like, I noticed this recurring theme happening like throughout this, uh, this problem that kept happening page by page, you know, like you need to really look at that overall arc there. Um, so once that stage of revision is complete, definitely, de generally you're ready to move on to the line editing stage, which of course is, um, you know, the most comprehensive, like close look at the manuscript. It's literally looking at every single individual word and sentence. There is some, you know, degree of correcting for like grammar and um, punctuation and structure and all of that. Um, you know, but it's really just making sure that like, you know, the sentences feel as if like they're organically written as if, you know, the, the, as if the dialogue sounds like something somebody would actually say, <laughs> it's not just stilted. Um, biggest uh, piece of advice I can give you for writing dialogue is make is reading it out loud to yourself. And it sounds like if it sounds like something that you would say, or that someone you know would say, then probably you're right on par with the dialogue. But if it sounds awkward to say, and as if like you're kind of forcing yourself and it's not it doesn't sound like, you know, normal, I guess, um, then you might want to make some tweaks and make it sound more like something somebody would actually say out loud. Um, <clears throat> if you so, yourself are an awkward person and regularly engage in awkward dialogue in real life, well, well, then you're yeah, in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more in the sense that like something I see with a lot of newbie authors um, is um, avoiding contractions. Um, in, in, in dialogue and, and general within their manuscripts. Cause I, I don't know if like there was some English class taught by some very like old, you know, English professor who was like, never use contractions. You must spell out everything. Like I can just imagine that there, there must've been some like class that was taught to everybody. Um, that back certainly happened here in Indiana. I had that teacher in high school. Yeah, exactly. But nobody talks that way. <laughs> That's the problem is that nobody talks without contractions. Um, so not so having your writing, you know, and if you have people speaking dialogue or even just speaking like within the manuscript itself, like without using any kind of contractions or anything like that, it just sounds very stilted and formal. And as if you're writing an academic paper instead of just normal, realistic fiction, you know? Um, so that's something, you know, and, and, and sometimes it is actually a stylistic choice. Like I, I recently copy edited, um, a book in which, um, there was one character who did not speak in contractions at all. And that was like typical of his character. It was, a, it was a very deliberate stylistic choice on behalf of the author. And so one of the things I had to keep an eye out for was his portions of dialogue and making sure there were not any contractions used, which is actually quite challenging <laughs> in some cases, you know, like um, to make it sound as if it's, you know, it makes sense and it's organic um, without using the contractions if possible. Um, you know, just do a search or a find feature to find all the uh, contractions within no, that section. I mean, like, like I, I would you would have missed something. I mean, at some point, like, you get so many, like, wouldn't, won't, didn't, like, you know, it's all of them. So. I actually uh, have come full circle since high school, and I have, uh, because I'm forever struggling with making sure I kept my word count down as short as I can get it without losing the, the, the star. I'm under the opinion the shorter a book, most times the better. The Book of David stands in, in, in sharp contrast to that thought of mine, uh, but, but, but it's the thought I've had. Uh, and so I'm 
I uh, use contractions now as the default, and I search for them in, in one of my final revisions, uh, unless I really have a strong stylistic feeling that a contraction shouldn't be used. I don't know what that adds to the conversation. I just wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> to share it. So let's, uh, let's officially transition. Uh, so we completed our ad for The Awkward Path to Getting Lucky by Summer <laughs> Heacock, Indiana author, available now. Uh, Summer, if I see you again, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> let's transition to what you're up to now. Um, you're, uh, what's, what does your, what, where can uh, esteemed audience get in touch with you to receive your editorial services and what kind of services are you offering now? So you can find me um, in a variety of different places. Um, my website is laurensmulskyliterary.com. Um, I apologize. My last name is very hard to spell. Um, it's S-M-U-L-S-K-I. <laughs> um, laurensmulskyliterary.com. That's my website. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Lauren E.S. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Lauren Smolsky Literary as well. Um, and of course, I'm also on um, Readsy as well. That's where I do I contact a lot of freelance clients is through Readsy. Um, so I'm on there as Lauren Smolsky, of course. Um, so that's all the all places that you can find me. In terms of the different services I offer, you know, I offer the um, entire breadth of editorial um, services that you would find you know, normally from an editor. So everything from manuscript assessments to developmental edits, line editing, and then of course the more nuanced um, copy editing and proofreading, um, which is of course, you know, copy editing is um, correcting all those like spelling, grammar, you know, punctuation issues, um, checking for consistency throughout the manuscript, making sure that you're not jumping ahead like six months or whatever accidentally, or that like, you know, so-and-so is still wearing his blue coat instead of a red coat 20 pages later. Um, things like that. <laughs> and, um, you know, proofreading, which is kind of like that last, um, <clears throat> I guess, last defense before the book goes out there, which is, you know, catching those last few typos, making sure that the spelling is all according to Merriam-Webster, everything's edited according to the Chicago Manual of Style, you know, so on and so forth. It's just, you know, those last few nitpicky errors that might have just made it through like six rounds of editing because they're always there. I have so much respect for those errors because they just get glossed over like six times. Um, anyway, uh, and that's that. So the copy editing and proofreading services are typically a little bit more useful um, for authors who are planning to self-publish. Um, I would not necessarily recommend anyone who's looking for a traditional publishing path to pay for copy editing or proofreading services um, but to a freelancer just because you're going to get that done in-house. Um, your publisher is going to do that for you and you're not going to have to pay for it. So that's not something that you're spending your money on. If you're looking to go the path of traditional publishing and you want to get the um, the eye of a freelancer on your work ahead of time, a manuscript assessment and a developmental editor are probably the things that you want to focus your budget on. Um, um, in addition to those like traditional editing services, um, I also offer you know like query letter reviews, query um, packaging, which is essentially you know, taking a look at your query letter and also the first 50 pages of your manuscript and giving those a really intensive, thorough edit. Um, so prepping stuff for queries um, is what is something I can do. American can I uh, pay you to pick out a list of people for me to query? Um, I mean, sort of, I guess. Like, I mean, I do know a lot of people in the industry, um, you know, but, but honestly, I think that authors are probably better off doing their own research in that respect. You know, I mean, there, there's an amazing resource out there called manuscriptwishlist.com, which was um, created by the lovely Jessica Sinsheimer. Um, uh, and uh, she and a couple of other colleagues um, created this website, manuscriptwishlist.com, a few years back. Um, 
that has a very um, extremely comprehensive listing of a bunch of different agents in the industry, as well as editors. It's a great resource both for um, aspiring authors who are looking for agents because they can find, you know, they can they can search um, by genre and like what different agents are, you know, representing and what they're interested in and bringing onto their list. And then agents in turn use the website in order to find editors that are compatible with the projects that they're trying to submit to publishers. Um, so that's a really great resource that I think every aspiring author should tap into um, because it's 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 a free service. You know, you can go in there and do your own research. Um, and um, and it, 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 it's good to show agents that you've done that research, you know, that you have picked them for a particular reason, that you're not just, you know, saying, sending them your work and saying, dear sir or miss, you know, like, dear, to whom it may concern and all of that. Like, no, they've done some research on you and they say, like, you know, dear specific person's name, I picked you to submit to because I saw that you were at this conference or because you edited this book and I feel like mine was sit on the shelf nicely with that, like that you've done your research on this particular agent because those are the kinds of things that are going to stand out in a query letter. They're going to say, oh, this person actually knows who I am. They care about what I've done and, you know, they've taken the time. So maybe they're a little bit more worthy of consideration, I guess, you know, <clears throat> so that's something that's really important to do. Um, Let them know, obviously, that you heard their interview on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. That's a movement I'm trying. I'm I'm, I'm trying to start. I want more uh, agents opening up the emails to say, "Oh yeah, <laughs> I saw you on Middle Grade Ninja, and I knew that you were the perfect editor for me." <laughs> <laughs> so so okay, excited. so you'll do that, and then so you'll you'll revise the whole query till where it's uh, tip top, can't can't miss. Yep, Guar guaranteed you success. Yep. And I'm also, you know, it's, it's kind of part and parcel with that. I also offer consultations about, you know, like identifying market comps and things, you know, that you can, you can actually comp your book to, um, giving, you know, some advice about like whether I think the manuscript is, is marketable and saleable, if it's hooky enough, um, uh, for self-published authors, you know, like a service that I'm offering too is, you know, like, um, again, consultations on like, you know, what comps to use. Um, I also help with like with copywriting, um, and, and actually writing um, flap copy and or revising flap copy if it's got something existing already. Um, and, you know, just consultation on like the state of the market. Um, I'm happy to do have conversations like that with authors um, and talk about, you know, like any, I guess, publishing related questions they might have, you know, um, I can do that. Um, you know, looking over uh, author websites and seeing if there's, you know, <clears throat> anything missing, you know, based on my experience and what our um, marketers in-house would say that the author websites should have or, you know, like great websites that I've seen out there from, you know, very successful authors who have big followings and fan bases. Um, so those kinds of like more specialized, like kind of per diem consultation services. Um, I offer, you know, Americanization of books that are previously published in the in the UK or Australia to put them into the more of the US market, make them more saleable over here. Um, and, you know, probably my biggest specialty, I guess, is um, is world building. It's something that I'm known for. You know, I've been working on fantasy books for pretty much my entire editing career. That's where I, where I that's a, where I like to read, um, and b, like the types of books that I've been working on for a long time. And, you know, if you know anything about me as an editor, you know that I tend towards those really epic, like, in you know, crazy, fantasy series that you know, like, really dig into an intense world building and lots of like big casts of characters and all of that. Like, Game of Thrones. What are three favorites? Huh? What are three favorites? <laughs> Just to um, give I us an idea, uh -huh. whether well, you've um, worked on or that you've just enjoyed reading, either one. 
So I really, you know, absolutely, totally love the Throne of Glass series by Sarah Moss. Um, I would have loved to be Sarah's editor <laughs> on those on those books. Um, I think that she, the intricacy of, you know, her world building is really fantastic in the way that she seeded some things in earlier books that eventually came full circle um, in the later books in the series was really fascinating to watch and really well done. Um, and uh, one of uh, my earliest acquisitions for Harlequin was um, The Black Witch by Laurie Forrest, which, of course, you know, did have its share of a little bit of controversy and all of that, but the Lori's world building is just this phenomenal, amazing <laughs> depth in terms of like you know, the richness of it. You know, she has so many different types of characters, um, the different magic systems, and everything is just like contained right up here in her head. Like if you ask her a question, she knows the answer, and it's just an incredible to watch. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, like I worked on Amanda Foodie's, um, shadow game, sorry, I'm looking at my bookshelf, um, <laughs> um Amanda Foodie's, um, shadow game series. I really enjoyed, um, working on as well. That was another one of my early acquisitions for Harlequin. Um, and just, you know, some things that I've read recently, I really liked, um, sorry, looking again at the shelf, um, uh, Christelle DeBoss, um, A Winter's Promise. That series was just like really gorgeously written and wrought. And I love the world building in those books as well. Um, uh, the Graceling series, of course, sorry, again, looking at my, my list of books and Tamora Pierce is a longtime favorite. She is, you know, the queen of fantasy. She's the one who really got me started, um, with reading and enjoying fantasy. Um, the Alana, you know, the, the Song of the Lioness Quartet, of course, like those were the books that really got me reading fantasy novels first. So <clears throat> earlier when you're doing a, a proofread copy edit that you'll find if a character's got one color coat and one scene and then it's another coat uh 20 pages later i imagine that's a problem it's just magnitude times a bajillion uh when you're dealing with uh with with intense world building and, and yes. fantasies <laughs> how do you keep track of that stuff because i'm the author and i can't keep track of that stuff in my own in my own book so when you come in and edit how do you keep track of it all um i mean a lot of it you know like at least for the the authors that i worked with when i worked in house like i was in with them on those series from the ground up, you know, like starting off. Um, so I, you know, wouldn't say that I knew their world building as intricately as they knew it, of course. Um, but, you know, it, you read a book so many times <laughs> that, you know, you learn to sort of keep track of these sorts of things. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, just in general, especially working with the freelance authors that I work with, um, something that I encourage fantasy authors to do is to create their what's called a world building bible um and so that is basically you know like before you even really start writing the book or even if you've gotten part way through it like i think it's really advisable to kind of just stop and create your your guidebook essentially to this world um all of the things that you know a reader should know um about your world you know like what what kind of money do they use there um you know how does the magic system work if there is any magic like or is there kind of some kind of advanced tech that needs to be <clears throat> kind of explained and seeded through. Um, you know, what are your characters, what languages do they speak? Um, how do are their dialects different, you know, from place to place? Um, you know, what uh, roles do the different types of people play within society? Like what are like, I guess the, the not the, the caste, um, the social, you know, like structures within the world? How does the government work? You know, like all of these things, I think, you know, it's it really behooves fantasy authors to kind of figure them out from the get go and really fully imagine their world as much as possible before they start writing it. And of course, there's always going to be things that kind of crop up throughout um, the book as you're writing it where you're kind of like, oh, I'm not really sure. I didn't really think about what I wanted to do here. But then, you know, 
hopefully there's fewer of those moments if you've taken the time to create your real building Bible. Um, and that's something that I also, like, again, a service I provide is consultations on those world building Bibles and helping them to develop them and really brainstorm and flesh those worlds out before they start writing. <clears throat> how long should a good world Bible be? I think it really depends on how complex and intricate your world is. Like, I mean, I'm sure it can be anywhere from just a few pages long if your world building isn't, you know, incredibly intricate to, gosh, maybe 50, 50 pages. So it really depends, again, on how complex your world is, whether you're writing more than one book in the series, etc. I know, just kind of fun, off, off, off topic a little bit. Uh, I've mentioned before, my, my wife, one of the many things I love about her uh, is she wrote her master's thesis on The Gunslinger by Stephen King, which, of course, is the first book in the Dark Tower series, which is um, one of my favorite fantasy series. I don't know if I'd, I'd put it number one, but it's up there. Um, uh, and um, uh, she reached out to the person that wrote the official compendium. And Stephen King has talked about, uh, in fact, it's, I think it's a blurb on the compendium of itself, that thank God this uh, fellow whose name I can't remember, sorry, uh, compendium fellow, uh, but it's, it's the Dark Tower Compendium, uh, and uh, Stephen mm. King said, well, how useful for you to have put this to, together for me, because now I'm using it to write the additional books, uh, and she reached out to him and had a response within 24 hours, so he's quoted uh, heavily within the uh, master's thesis, uh, just, I don't know, I, I, I don't know that that has any relevance to what we're talking about, other than, all right, isn't world building fun, isn't it neat to have a nice big compendium? No, it is absolutely fantastic, you know, and, and also, you know, like, as I, I'm learning, too, as a freelancer, like, um, on certain books that I work on, um, especially if I'm doing a developmental edit um, instead of an editorial assessment or if I'm doing a copy edit, um, it's really helpful for me to have, at the very least, like, a few pages, you know, identifying, like, you know, who the main characters are so I know what the proper spellings of their names are, for instance, um, like, what their relationships are with various different people in the world, um, who the king or queen, if there's a kingdom, you know, or the, the, the ruling class, like whoever those important figures are, um, with the names of the different, like, you know, towns that the, um, the characters are visiting and like different qualities about those towns, um, the names of like the countries and continents, you know, so on and so forth. Um, if there's any like, you know, weird quirky spellings in the book that I should be aware of, like, those are actually things that I have started asking authors for, um, you know, cause if I'm not involved with the book from like the very first like manuscript assessment, I'm coming in kind of partway through, um, to do like a line edit or a proofread or something like that. I need to know that those, what those things are so I can make sure that they're consistent throughout the manuscript. <clears throat> so if I uh, come to you, I'm listening to the Middle Grade Ninja podcast as I do faithfully every week. And I'm so excited. Uh, and I want to reach out to you and make you my editor um, uh, or hope that you'll, you'll be interested in taking me on. What's, what should I send you? How should I approach you? What do you need to know for us to get the ball rolling? So I have a contact page um, on my website, um, which is, you know, which is uh, has, you know, like your name, your email address, like how to contact you and so on and so forth. Um, and essentially the things that I need to be able to give um, a quote and determine if we are a good editorial fit um, are, you know, like probably a 10 page sample of your manuscript to get a sense of, you know, like what your writing is like. Um, uh, a, like a brief synopsis, even if it's just a few paragraphs, so I know what the book is about, the genre that you're writing in, um, whether, you know, what, what category in terms of whether it's adult or young adult, um, the word count, um, and what kind of timeline you're working on, um, whether you need it done, like, tomorrow, which, sorry, it's not going to happen, um, <laughs> or if you... What if I will pay you a million dollars? It's fine, you know, like, one or the other, you know, um... Generally, um, I, I say on my website that generally for full manuscript services, I can guarantee a turnaround of about three weeks. 
But at this point, um, I am fully booked for December. Um, I have some availability still in January, but yeah, I'm booking into the new year at this point. So. Gotcha. And um, I know that you had offered, let me look it up here because I can't, I uh, can't remember offhand. Well, I could just ask you, I know you offer a consultation where I can send you a partial submission. So would it just be 10 pages uh, to get a sample of what, what it is that you would provide my work with uh, before I commit to, uh, to whatever we agree upon is going to be at the appropriate rate for the full service? Yep. If the um, if you're interested in getting an editorial sample, you can send me, you know, like it's usually what I do for um, an editorial sample is about two pages, um, you know, and it's more available for anything um, developmental copy editing proofreading. That's more of what I offer for that. It's tough to do like for an, ed an editorial assessment on two pages because that's more of, again, a broad strokes like overall story thing. Um, but for developmental notes, um, line edit, copy edit, proofreading, um, I'm happy to do a two page sample for authors <clears throat> so they can get a sense of whether I'm a good editorial fit. Uh, if I reach out to you and I say, Lauren, I, I think you're amazing. Let's do this. And you say, I'm sorry, but after I was on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, I became so incredibly popular that everybody wants me and I'm booked up for the next five years. Um, what are the best ways for an author to then evaluate uh, a freelance editor to use? Uh, and what kind of things should they be looking at in, in that two pages or, or whatever they get back to give them an idea of whether or not this is going to be a good fit? I mean, I think, you know, um, it obviously depends on, you know, what kind of service they're looking for, of course. Um, but just in general, I think something to look for with authors, uh, with, with when you're looking for an editor, is someone who's going to be, that you're going to be comfortable working with, um, that you feel that their editorial style is going to be compatible with yours, you know, whether they, whether you want them to be like super harsh and critical and you want them to like, you know, really just give you the bare bones truth and all of that. Or if that's not something you're comfortable with, you need somebody to kind of like really sugarcoat things for you. Like it's good to kind of get a sense of what the author's editorial style is in the types of notes they're giving you in those sample pages um, and the tone of delivery. Um, making sure they're actually catching those typos that you probably have in those first couple of pages. Um, and also in general, like, you know, the suggestions that they're making, if they feel as if they are, you know, compatible with the world and the story that you're trying to, you know, to, to create here, because a good editor, um, what they should seek to do is to nurture and cultivate what's already there, not change it to suit whatever mold they think is saleable or hooky enough or whatever. Um, you know, they should be working with the author to like, you know, enhance their unique voice um, in the story and, you know, making suggestions that, you know, are just that, that are suggestions and they're and that, you know, they're phrased as, as such and saying, you know, I think that this might be a little more powerful or a little punchier if we do this, or I think this could be um, enhanced if we phrase it this way or something and providing some rationale um, for why they think that change is necessary but also showing that they can be flexible. If there's something that you feel really strongly about not changing, an editor shouldn't push you um, to really, you know, unless it's something that's like incredibly problematic or has a sensitivity problem or something something along those lines. And that in which case I would definitely push an author, really try to push them towards making that shift and everything. But largely it should be a very collaborative process and an editor should be more of a guide than a dictator. Does that change a little bit now? Because uh, if I come back, come to you back with your at uh, Harlequin, uh, and I say, well, no, I feel that everyone should die at the end of my romance novel. Um, that's a different conversation when this is a, a book for Harlequin that's going to match the Harlequin uh, model. Um, the, before they die, they say, love isn't real. 
<laughs> that's that's my passion ending. Uh, versus if I come to you uh, and, um, and 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 now I've hired you directly, does that change that dynamic a little bit as to how hard you're going to push me to change that terrible ending or anything else throughout the manuscript? I mean, you know, obviously if I'm working, you know, if I was working in-house and we had a, you know, especially on like if I was working on a series imprint, which I didn't personally have experience with, but, you know, the series romance, there's a certain promise that each imprint offers in terms of what the story should deliver on, right? And if an author isn't delivering on that promise, then, you know, they they risk potentially having the contract canceled um, by the publisher if they can't actually you know, fulfill that promise or, you know, work within the parameters of, you know, that those constraints and everything. Um, or again, like, <clears throat> you know, more on the side that I was working on, if there's a significant sensitivity issue that we know is going to blow back um, and then it's going to be a really big problem, it's going to cause a big controversy in the community or something like that, you know, and an author is like, nope, I'm not changing it. I don't care how racist it is. I want to leave it in. Like, that's not going to work, right? <laughs> like, it's not going to work for us. We got to change it or, you know, otherwise... Don't know if we can continue publishing the book. Whereas, you know. <clears throat> well, that's uh, traditionally that's been true. Although in the, this new modern America, who knows? That <laughs> could fly someplace. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, but as a freelancer, you know, I'm going to give you all the advice that I can in order to make your book as saleable as possible. I will give you, you know, what sensitivity feedback I personally, you know, have enough experience to supply. Of course, you know, like if you're writing a character that's outside of your own um, experience, you know, especially if it's a marginalized character, I always, you know, 100% um, support going out and trying to find a sensitivity reader from that marginalization, from that culture to be able to give you that extra set of eyes on the project. Um, but there are certain things that I learned over my years as a professional editor that I knew that I know are big no-nos, you know, that I've done, that I've learned through my own research, my own experience that I can say, hey, that word is ableist or that word is really problematic or that's a really terrible stereotype or something along those lines so that I can point out as I, that I know is a problem. And, you know, I can do my best, you know, at this point to, you know, to guide authors and, you know, to say, Hey, I think that romance isn't quite earned or, you know, I think you can use a better ending here. But at the end of the day, like it's, it's their book and I will, you know, suggest a way multiple times if need be. But, you know, if you're, especially if you're self-publishing, it's up to you. It's your prerogative. And then, you know, if it's, if it, the book sells great, if it doesn't, well, I tried to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> See, I like that. I like, uh, this is something I'm hoping in addition to seeing, uh, publishing decentralize and, and move out across the country. I like the idea of the person whose name goes on the cover of the book, calling the final shots and being wrong and, 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 and paying that penalty fine. But if it's your name on the book, it's, it's, it's your mistake to make. Um, I like this idea of more editors moving out of the traditional system and providing that information. Cause here you are, you have all this experience, you have all this knowledge and it's available now. Um, not to, not to everybody. I imagine again, you're going to be filling up uh, pretty quickly and you're already on a, on a waiting list for people. Um, but that that's a possibility that I can come to you and still call the shots. I'd like to see that more across uh, all aspects of publishing. Uh, some of the best cover designers out there are former cover designers for uh, big, big five publishers that have now moved on and are doing freelance work. Um, where do you see the state of the market right now and where do you see publishing going? Is it moving more toward this author-empowered utopia I'm hoping for or are we looking at maybe something else? <sighs> It's really, it's, it's a tough call, right? I mean, like, at, like working in-house, you know, I 
And so covers, for example, since you just mentioned that, um, I think that there is, you know, the level of empowerment really varies, I think, from, you know, even book to book and author to author and, and publishing house to publishing house, you know, I mean, if you've got a book that you know is going to be a really big book for the program, like it's going to be like publicized like crazy and so on and so forth, um, you're going to have more, um, the higher levels are going to have more of a say in terms of, you know, like what the, what the book should, um, what the cover should look like and whether they feel like it's marketable, whether they feel like it's going to stand on the shelf and really be innovative enough to bring in that large audience. Um, you know, and authors are definitely consulted and given, you know, a certain amount of, um, you know, opportunities to weigh in on the cover design and the direction and so on and so forth. Um, but ultimately like, you know, some of those decisions I've definitely had to convey to unhappy authors before that like, sorry, I know that you really love this aspect of the cover, but they feel like it's going to niche it too much. You know, they feel like it's not going to, you know, be competitive enough standing up to like the Sarah Moss and Lee Bardugos of the world. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so, you know, I think that it's, definitely varies, you know, depending on what publisher um, you're at. But the nice thing about the industry as a whole right now is that because self-publishing has become such um, kind of a, a normal thing to do at, the, at this point, you know, which I which I really appreciate, obviously, as a freelancer, because it, you know, means that I will have more business long term, you know, hopefully. Um, well, I hope so are better paid. <laughs> in some cases, you know, <laughs> but, you know, but it, but it has, you know, offered some really great opportunities for people who may, you know, be in that like top one or 2% of really great submissions, but aren't that like 0.1 top percent, you know, that gets acquired or something like that. Their books are really great and fantastic. They're just not necessarily, they don't have like that edge that'll get them acquired by a traditional publisher and put out on the shelves those people still have an opportunity to put their books out there um, and to self-publish them. And I know there are so many authors right now that they're making a mint on self-publishing because, you know, at the end of the day, like publishers, the royalties you get from traditional publishers are quite low. Um, and your advances, you know, like, again, can range anywhere from like $10,000 to like half a million dollars, um, depending on how, how badly they want your book and how many other publishers want your book. Um, but, you know, you only get a certain percentage of royalties from that publication because the author, because the publisher is, of course, um, taking on the financial responsibility and the all the overheads and the liabilities um, of publishing that work and, you know, putting all of the money in up front and hoping that they get a return on their investment because that's what it is. It's an investment um, in a product that they hope will pan out and make them a profit. Um, whereas with self-publishing, you, of course, are the one assuming all of the liability for that publication. And so if it flops, all the money that you've invested in editing and a cover and so on and so forth, um, is, you know, potentially down the drain. Um, but if it pans out and it actually sells really well, you're going to make more as a self-published author than you are as a traditionally published author. Yeah, and all you have to do is be able to stomach the fact that there's going to be a certain boomer at a certain conference that says, self-published, day. I don't know about that. <laughs> if you can stomach that, get past it, <laughs> you'll be all right. I know, it's it's because it, it, there used to be such a stigma around it, but I really think that stigma is actually starting to kind of come down a little bit, um, especially since I think that there are more authors, um, especially authors that were previously traditionally published, they are realizing that, like, oh, hey, I have this massive fan base. I can go out and make a lot more money if I just, you know, self-publish the books myself. My name's already established. 
Um, and there are some that are doing that, or they're doing a hybrid. They're doing some traditional publishing, then they're self-publishing um, other books, you know, like that are outside of that ser that core series they're with, they have with a traditional publisher, um, or they're maybe writing in a slightly different genre that they wanted to write in forever, um, and so on. Um, you know, so as more of those authors start doing that and embracing the self-publishing culture, I think the stigma of self-publishing has really lessened significantly, um, which is great because I think that, you know, I think self-publishing is, is a fantastic opportunity for authors um, to be able to, you know, kind of control their work a little bit more, you know, like, oh, really, truly own it. <laughs> um, again, like make a little bit more in terms of profits um, and, you know, it also, I think, allows them to really write what they're passionate about because, you know, so often we have, you know, we have gatekeepers, of course, in traditional publishing and in the form of booksellers and librarians and teachers and so on and so forth who are like, oh, well, you know, my, my students and my, you know, the people in my bookstore, they're asking for these books, but like, it seems like that genre is dead, like vampires are dead dystopians dead, you know, so on and so forth. We're not buying anything. We're not taking anything for stock in our stores in those genres. Um, but then you look at, you know, the ebook market online and you've got like people who are selling paranormal romance like crazy and supposedly that genre is dead, you know? I mean, so it, it, I think it provides some opportunities to write in some really different kind of genres that aren't necessarily selling well in the traditional marketplace, but that are apparently selling like hotcakes as, as ebooks. Yeah, I don't care what the market trend is currently. If your book has zombies in it, I'm interested. Go on. <laughs> so I think, you know, self-publishing provides an outlet, you know, for those genres and books that may not be deemed commercial at this point in time. But, you know, there's always going to be a reader for your story. May not be a huge readership, but there's always going to be somebody who's interested. Well, that's what I want because I, you know, the traditional system. If I go in there, uh, there's a lot of hope, a lot of, a lot of wish. I, the, 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 the example I, I hold up is the what I believe is a publishing horror story, even though it's touted as an inspirational tale. As uh, was J.K. Rowling goes through seven, eight publishers, and then she's at Bloomsbury, uh, and the is it the executive editor's daughter, discovered uh, five year old, five or seven year old daughter. I've got it written down someplace the exact uh, facts about it, but she picks up uh, Harry Potter and she reads it and and she says, "Daddy, this is a wonderful book. You should publish it." And he says, "Oh, okay. Well, Pumpkin, if you think that's a good book, we'll we'll give it a go. I was going to reject it, but let's let's try it out." Uh, and it's held up as the story. See, if you just hope and trust, then all the good forces and positive things in the universe will line up and, and things will work out for you. I think that's a horror story because how many Harry Potter-like books did she not just happen to not be there to read? Yeah. <laughs> how many did we miss out on? I know. It's true. It's true. So how many, you know, like, did they just feel like there wasn't the right place at the right time and somebody just threw it away in their nightstand and never went back to writing after that, you know? So, okay, so you're going to be available, and now people are hearing this, and they're realizing that you need uh, you need a Lawrence Bolsky. You need somebody to go through and, and, and make your book better. Uh, they have the option to come directly to you. I don't have to hope when I go into the publishing house that I'm going to get partnered up with you. I can go out and seek you directly, which is outstanding, because I can get the editor I want. I can get the cover designer I want. Um, and um, well, we should talk a little bit about uh, quality. Um, because if I'm uh, if I'm in this newfound position, I'm uh, an author who's just written their second their first second book. Although you should don't publish your first book, authors write at least one more, maybe two more. Get good, 
get beyond the fact your mom is saying this is wonderful. Get get some objective people saying this is wonderful, then publish that one. But uh, where was I going with that? You get to that level, and then uh, I can I can reach out to you. But if I oh okay, I'm overwhelmed with choices, and I see that on Fiverr uh, there are editors who will do my entire project for I don't know two hundred bucks. There's a difference there. There's a difference between somebody that will take you $200 and, hi, I'm fresh out of uh, college or fresh out of high school, but I was always really good at English and I, I, I read good. I'll take a look at your book uh, versus uh, Lawrence Wilski. So what what are those differences? What Because uh, nice things cost money. Um, without uh, We've been crassing up one show. I'm not going to ask you what kind of money that authors should, uh, should expect to pony up for your services. They'll get a consultation. You'll work that out between you. Um, but, um, what are the differences? This comes back to how do I evaluate a good editor? How do I know that I'm getting my money's worth? That's really difficult to answer. Honestly, I feel like, cause it's, I feel it's like a very subjective one because, you know, I think every author needs something different from their editor in a way, um, in terms of like what the types of things that they're going to offer. Um, but I know that even, you know, just in the, six weeks or so since I launched my freelance business, you know, I've had a couple of clients where I've worked on their books, um, you know, after they've had previous stages done and they've come back to me and been like, Oh my God, like how did my previous editor miss all these things? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, like, I think that even within the ranks of, you know, like professionally hired editors, you know, there are, you know, um, I guess like there are degrees of, of talent and or like ob observation and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I think you want to do your research on the person's background. Um, I think something that's really helpful to to look at is, you know, like what what is their, you know, their background, their history, you know, like on my Readsy profile, for instance, like it sort of reads in a lot of ways, like a LinkedIn profile in terms of like, hey, I worked X number of years at this publisher, like, this is my experience, this is my background, like, and most importantly, like asking, you know, for a, like a portfolio of books that they've worked on, you know, I think that the more published books and the more com like successfully published books that an editor has worked on, um, especially if they're books that are on your own TBR list, like things that are things that you've personally read um, that are on your shelf, like that's the kind of editor that you probably want to contract for your services. You say, wow, like they did a fantastic job editing, I don't know, The Hunger Games or something like that, you know, and I want them to edit my book too, you know, like that's something that you might want to keep an eye out for. And yes, you know, editors like that are going to be a little more expensive and you know, you have to kind of be prepared to, to pay for the quality of the work. Um, you know, and again, like asking for those um, samples, those uh, sample edits, I think are a really helpful thing to be able to give a discerning eye in terms of what you think you're going to get. Um, somebody who is actually communicative and who is like, um, who is responding to your requests quickly um, and with thoroughness, showing that they've actually read your sample that you've sent over, um, if they're responding to the genre that you actually like to, that you're writing in, like if they've actually edited that genre before, um, I think is really, you know, something to keep in mind, because if you have, if you're approaching an editor whose specialty is contemporary romance, and you have an epic YA fantasy, that may not be the best editorial fit. Um, they're probably amazing at editing like Nora Roberts type books, but maybe not necessarily a Sarah J. Moss. You know, I mean, there are certain, you know, aspects of editing that are universal across the board in terms of like, oh, you know, this sentence is awkwardly phrased, like I can fix that. And everything but in terms of you know like really pulling out world building details and fantasy for instance or really like enhancing the romantic arc you know or those really romantic first kiss moments in a relationship or something like that you know like there's a very big difference between 
those types of things when you're editing. <clears throat> we talked a lot about your uh, personal love of fantasy and, and one of your expertise. And then obviously I assume that all things romance, you're going to be an incredible resource. Um, what other uh, genres and types of projects are you interested in working on? And are there any types of genres or projects where you would be a terrible choice for? Um, never, ever, ever come for, come to me for horror. I just, I, 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 I can't edit horror. Like I am a big scaredy cat and, um, it's not my area of expertise. So, um, horror is definitely not the thing that you want to come to me for. Um, I would say that, you know, like traditional nonfiction projects are also not necessarily my forte. Um, you know, non, I did a nonfiction, nonfiction anthology, which was of course a collection of essays. That was something that I felt um, very comfortable working on um, and you know because it was a lot of personal experiences and again it was like short form essays um, it was about a topic I felt very passionately about um, but traditional nonfiction isn't necessarily the kind of thing that I, I would normally work on um, so the things that I do enjoy working on pretty much everything within the scope of young adult um, I've worked on a lot of different genres within YA um, fantasy and sci-fi of course being kind of like the predominant things that I worked on previously but I also, you know, like traditional <clears throat> contemporary fiction um, I've worked on within YA. Um, so, for example, um, Don't Read the Comments by Eric Smith, which is coming out in January. Um, that's a contemporary issue driven um, story um, set in the YA space. Um, it's about uh, video gaming. <laughs> um, this online um, stream streaming gamer um, who, uh, you know, is, is being bullied by really horrible online trolls. And she winds up meeting um, this really sweet um, wonderful aspiring game writer um, online um, through this game that they play together, Reclaim the Sun. Um, and, you know, the story is told in two different perspectives. And anyway, they, they fall in love and it's delightful and wonderful. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I, I've done, I've done some, uh, you know, historical as well, like both um, primarily the, the experience that I have personally had with historicals has been um, with a little bit more recent historical. So I edited um, a book called Rebel Girls by Elizabeth Keenan, which was set in um, the 90s um, in um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in the wake of the um, abortion protests of 1992. Um, so that book was really great because it's a very bipartisan read um, in the sense that it's got two sisters. One is pro-life, one is pro-choice, and they're trying to find a way to kind of bridge um, their differences to um, combat some rumors that are going through the halls of their high school, um, which is a Catholic, you know, very pro-life high school. So um, the main character is pro-choice and it's that presents some issues for her, of course. Um, but somebody starts spreading a rumor that her little pro-life pro sister um, had an abortion over the summer. So they have to kind of find a way to diffuse those rumors, save her sister's reputation, but also maybe change the mindset of the people around them and realize that this isn't really your business either way, you know? Um, so again, anything in the YA space, you know, like from contemporary to fantasy, um, a little bit of historical here and there, um, I've worked on, I've done a couple of thrillers in the YA space of, uh, as well, including The Disappearance of Sloan Sullivan by Gia Cribs. Um, on the adult side, I definitely skew more towards fantasy. Um, that's a, a definite specialty of mine, a little bit of science fiction as well. Um, <clears throat> and, um, rom-coms are like something I absolutely love to work on in the adult space also in the YA space but there's something you know to be said about like those YA rom-coms um which you know we could have probably about a decade ago called chiclet essentially um but they're so much more sophisticated now and there's so much so many more um they're much more feminist and empowered and they're just really fun to work on these days um so 
those are the areas that I really particularly specialize in. I also um, am a total sucker for anything historical fiction um, in the adult side, especially, I mean, I don't necessarily recommend that people publish Tudor fiction anymore um, within the Tudor period, like Henry VIII and his wives, because that period is so overdone, but I am completely obsessed with the Tudor period. I actually worked on um, a contemporary YA retelling of Henry VIII and his six high school girlfriends. Well, I was at a <laughs> called the Dead Queens Club. It's hysterical. Um, it's really great. So I would recommend checking it out. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very broad in terms of the types of things that I like to work on that I have experience working on because at Harlequin, again, I had the opportunity, sort of a unique one, to work on both um, adults and young adult novels. So, what do you think of just about the Tudor period and in particular that, uh, that that catches your eye? I just I so part of it is is the the sort of the enigma that is Henry VIII in the sense that he had this just like incredible charisma about him, you know, that really drew people to him. But at the same time, he was sort of a sociopath. Um, and definitely, you know, like a complete narcissist and, you know, was obviously prone to extreme fits of anger um, and everything. So he's just like this very interesting character, I guess, to follow. But more importantly, like I find his wives to be very fascinating um, and the, 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 their experiences and um, being on the receiving end of, you know, Henry's both love and hate um, and reading about like the different places that they came from and the experiences that they had and what it was like to kind of like step into the roles as the next queen who might die. Um, you know, I just in general find all of those women very fascinating. And of course, like his and of course, Henry VIII's daughters as well, you know, particularly Queen Elizabeth. Um, I find her um experience and then Mary Queen of Scots her I find her very fascinating as well that whole just family I think is very intriguing so I think it would have been a lot easier to uh, be a sociopath uh, back in really any any historical period uh, before cell phone cameras uh, and, and, and traffic cameras uh, but more so because it seems like there was just uh, a space in society for some of those types of people yes. like uh, I haven't stopped thinking about there's a podcast uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History because I never get tired of telling people about podcasts they could be listening to right now instead of this one uh, but it's, it's a great show and he did one on um uh, torture in, in the Colosseum, and there was like a whole family of, it was a family business, being an executioner and a torturer, and yeah. if you wanted to break in, like outside the main Colosseum, there were like little little stand-ups uh, that were just trying to, to get, you know, get their, their type five, uh, so they would torture people outside, so if you're coming out for lunch in between the big uh, mainstay uh, gladiator matches and, and, and formal executions, they would execute people just outside of that and like take requests. Uh, and so I think, okay, well, this is this is a, clearly a, a, a portion of society that we had for this. There was a need for this person, apparently, for <laughs> generations and generations and generations. Right. And now we come to our modern age, and those, that, that that position's not there anymore. It's it's in their heart. It's <laughs> they have that author-like feeling about wanting to do that. And what 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 are they supposed to do with that now that that position's not available? <laughs> you know, it's true. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if they've like since become like our like this uh, era serial killer killers. I don't know if that's who they are now or what, but like <laughs> maybe that's what they've decided to do instead. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I it is really interesting. Like you know, thinking about like the various professions that once existed, um, you know, in bygone years and how they don't exist anymore, and like what. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, you know, like if, if you were living in another, if I was living in another life and I didn't have the option to be a book editor, what would I do? 
And I don't really know what that would be. Probably a cupcake baker. <laughs> <laughs> and that, of course, is the reason to seek you out is because I assume after a project, maybe two projects, things go well, the book does well. There, there at some point in your future could maybe be a cupcake or maybe even a pinata cake if you play your cards right. <laughs> That's a promise I'm going to make on your behalf to all of the uh, esteemed audience out there listening. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm watching the clock and I know our time's uh, getting away from it. It always does because uh, there's so many things I want to ask you about. Um, but I probably should ask you just some straightforward editing questions and then we should maybe think about calling it a day before I wear you out completely. I appreciate you you being so very generous with your time today. Uh, one question a esteemed audience knows I have to ask you, and while we're kind of in the weeds anyway, uh, Lawrence Wilski, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? You know, I've never seen one, but I am absolutely 100% willing to entertain the idea that there are alien lives out there. Fair enough. Uh, and a esteemed audience knows all too well where I stand on the subject. It's, it's a thing for sure. Do some research. You'll be on my page by the end of the day. All right. Well, let's talk uh, a couple of, I'm going to, I'm going to try and pick your brain for some free info. Uh, if that's all right. Uh, just some questions I want to ask you about, uh, specifically about editing. So um, I know that one of the things um, that you're doing is you're looking for biggest mistakes, specifically in world building. Uh, so what are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing authors do in world building? I'm going to ask you that same question about some other aspects as well. well let's start with world building. Okay. So there's two very common mistakes um, that can be done in world building. One is either info dumping which is, you know, like you're just throwing a bunch of information about the world on the page for the reader to just kind of absorb and digest, but not really infusing it organically. You can't just dump it on the page like it's a history book or something like that. You need to actually like infuse it into the world, introduce it in a way um, that feels um, as if it's within the, the character's knowledge base, I guess, you know, like, so if they, you know, have you know, some innate knowledge about how their town works or how a certain type of magic works or whatever, you want to try to explain it to the reader, A, like in the proper moment when it makes sense to do so, but also B, within a context that makes sense for that character's knowledge base. Um, so info dumping is a very common um, error that we see in manuscripts. And then in, on the opposite end of the spectrum, not enough exposition. And not enough world building um, where you're seeing, you know, like you, you're talking about this very esoteric magic system and you're like, oh, there were these swirling colors and patterns and blah, 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 blah. But like, OK, I don't care. Like, what is it? How does it work? Like, what spell are you using? Like, what is your thought process happening here? Like, you know, how does how how are you actually manifesting this magic? What's your training been like? You know, all of those things like run through my mind. I am the editor who's going to sit there and just poke holes in everything. <laughs> say like, I need to know how that works. We may not, we not may not actually put it on the page, but I need to know from my own knowledge how this works. So, like I said, so how? And I know it varies from project to project. There's no good way to answer this, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. Um, what is the appropriate ratio of exposition to uh, forward action, especially in the beginning of a story? And what are the best ways to work that exposition in where you're not grinding the story to a halt in an info dump? <sighs> Again, like it really, it varies again, like you said, from story to story. Um, but I think, you know, the balance is, is like, you want to make sure that you're giving the reader enough info that they feel like they're thoroughly grounded in the world, that they understand, you know, fairly early on how certain things work, um, but not giving them more information than they need for that given moment. Like if you're, 
going to build up to a point where like, okay, the main characters are going to go on this crazy quest. Um, and at the end of the book, they're going to get to this place that I'm going to have to explain in great detail. The reader doesn't need to know about that place or all of the details about, you know, like the, the lore of that area or like all the details of the different places are going to go on this quest from the outset. Like you need to supply the reader with the reader with enough information to understand the world and what the characters are doing within that world at that moment. Um, and of course, and continue to build on that as the story unfolds. Like I said, infusing the information in organically as it makes sense to do so. That's, it's always a very interesting balance to try to strike. But at the same time, something also to keep in mind is making sure that you're not bogging down the pacing with too much exposition. Because I'm sitting there and you're, you know, rattling off this, you know, multi-paragraph description of like this beautiful room and the gorgeous dress that she was wearing and the, you know, flickering lights and the atmosphere and so on and so forth. Like, that's delightful. I love reading about it. But like, I don't, what are the characters doing? Like, you know, what, why does this matter? You know, like you, so you want to balance it out with like, you know, giving, definitely making sure that you're setting the scene, but keeping the story actually moving forward and making sure the characters are actually doing things and not just admiring the scenery. So, I mean, I, <laughs> so like one of the biggest issues I have with, you know, for example, Lord of the Rings is that Tolkien will take like three or four chapters to write a battle scene that could have taken place in one chapter. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, angry emails coming your way now. I'm sorry, Tolkien fans. <laughs> the Battle of Helm's Deep, man, does not need as many pages as it got. <laughs> No, I'm on record uh, uh, from previous shows stating that emphatically I think The Lord of the Rings is boring. <laughs> the first one, anyway. Uh, Two yeah. Towers gets a little bit more exciting. Yeah. Uh, and then the third one's fine. But that first one, especially with the House of Tom Bombadil and the constant singing and the description of everything I would never need to know. Um, Context. So, yeah. <laughs> But when you're the only game in town uh, and you're the first uh, heralding, well, he was, I don't think he was the first, but one of the, the first heralding uh, a, a new renaissance of fantasy, I guess you can get away with some things that you just can't get away with these days. Yeah. But Charles Dickens did it is never an argument for <laughs> why you're doing something in 2019. <laughs> uh, so, okay, that's world building. Uh, an exposition. How about character development and motivations? What are mistakes that you're seeing, and what's a good way to? What are good some good reliable methods to relay those motivations without flat out just telling the writer this or telling the reader this character wants this? Or should you do that? I think that there are you know like there's there's ways to subtly build up what the character motivations are by the way that they react to things and the way that they interact with people within the world. Um, and, you know, and, and the goals that they they have as characters, you know, like if they're saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, if they're reacting to someone they meet with, you know, disgust or they, they're just kind of dismissing everything that they're saying, then it becomes very, very clear that they don't value that person or that person's opinion or whatever they're contributing, you know, to their, their maybe they're not contributing to their overall goals and motivations, um, you know, whereas if they have a mentor that they're like worshiping at their feet and, you know, like, taking everything they say as like, you know, biblical context or something like that, you know, then that gives some clues and in terms of like, you know, what their, um, what their priorities are and, you know, like what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and again, like, you know, as if they're saying like, you know, I want to go here and, and do this and all of that. Yeah. I mean, 
there are ways to subtly infuse those things into the manuscript without spelling out like, you know, this is my goal and I'm going to achieve it. Um, that actually, that can work in certain contexts, you know, like if, especially if you're, if that's the kind of voice that you're writing in, like I definitely worked on a book recently that, you know, like did a lot of that fourth wall breaking. If you're talking to your audience and you want to tell them what your motivation are, then sure, like that totally works. But most of the time it's something that's, you know, very subtly infused, you know, and, and, and unveiled over the course of the story um, and not necessarily set up right from the get go. Another question I'll ask uh, extemporaneously because something I've been struggling with myself uh, is yeah, I want to avoid the um, uh, Hemingway-esque, is that a thing? Uh, the Hemingway-esque section of dialogue where it's uh, hills like white elephants is the story I'm thinking of where it's just line of dialogue, line of dialogue, uh, several several lines without even a form of speech attribution. Um, to just have to keep track of who's talking. I don't like that. I think most of the time, unless you're Hemingway and you're doing it for effect, um, and even if you're Hemingway, maybe maybe add some description. Um, what I see is two talking heads against a green screen. That world is not alive. Uh, but I'm also going to ding you if you spend three paragraphs telling me about the candelabra when I want to know what's going on with the characters. Yeah. Um, is another one of those things that's going to vary from story to story, book to book, all that stuff. But is there, in general, a good um, a good rule of thumb you have for how much description should be on a page versus how much dialogue uh, and keeping those scenes from one of those two extremes? So in terms of, like, I'll focus more on dialogue in this, in this context. Um, so in terms of, you know, like the talking heads, as you're saying, and like the missing dialogue tags, I think that you can really only get away with maybe like three or four lines of back and forth dialogue in terms of like, you know, Character A says this, character B says that, character A, character B. I think that's about all you can get away with before the reader starts to lose track of who's speaking. Um, and when you need to really infuse in some dialogue tags. Um, and, you know, also within that, I think that it's really important, you know, when you're, we the, you know, there is a certain, you don't necessarily want to um, have reactions after every single thing that a character says. But if you're having like, you know, half a chapter is largely just like this conversation back and forth between these two characters. And there's not really a lot else going on except for talking. We need to, first of all, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> like just let, end of story. Like you shouldn't be spending that much time on just dialogue and a conversation between two people. But if, you know, if that is necessary to the story for some reason, um, you need to break up that dialogue with, you know, a at least dialogue tags like he says, she says, whatever. Um, but also reactions to what's being said um, in terms of like, you know, is the character saying something shocking? Is is there are they imparting really bad news that you're going to cry over, you know, or are they, you know, like, is it really joyful, you know, news that they're going to you know jump up and cheer about? Um, or are they planning some kind of journey? What are they doing while they're talking? Because nobody just sits there and talks and does nothing. I mean, look at me, I'm gesturing all over the place with the camera while I talk. Um, you know, they're going to be like running their fingers through their hair or they might be getting up to like, you know, do a chore or something like that while they're talking to somebody, you know, like load the dishwasher or maybe they're packing a bag for a journey or something like that. Like providing that balance between like, you know, you wanna make sure that the scene seems as if, seems realistic as if it would actually play out this way. Like rarely do, do people just sit there and talk and do nothing else. So that's something I've been trying to do myself is because uh, I want to get my my setting description in there. Uh, is I'll have the characters specifically interact with the uh, 
with the setting. So yes. don't worry, I can tell you more about the candelabrum if my character is angrily dusting it while she argues with whoever. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I mean, yeah, there, there's a balance to be struck there between like you know, like you can you can definitely adequately set the scene while this conversation is happening, and it makes it more interesting for the reader too because then they can actually see what's going on around them, like actually giving some context for the the surroundings and the background of this conversation is important. Uh, and then, um, oh, uh, Motion of Death was the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I know that's uh, an expertise of yours. Um, how, so subjective of how much emotional depth should be there and how to know when you've achieved it? Because it, it is a fine line. If you go too far and you get schmaltzy, um, what is it? Is it Oscar Wilde that said he was crying tears of laughter at Charles Dickens by the end because it was, oh, bring on the terribleness for the orphans, continue to emotionally manipulate me? Uh, you don't want to go that far, but you also don't want to you don't want to be so dry that there's no emotion. What are some telltale signs you look for when you're trying to decide where where we're at on that on that spectrum of how how well the emotional depth is going and what's on the page versus what's below the surface? So I think, you know, something, uh, you know, of course, in moments of dialogue, I think is actually the place where um, emotional resonance and emotional depth is a place where it's actually difficult to um, to, to make sure that that's on the page. Um, a lot of times authors will start to rely on what the characters are saying and they're like and they're they're showing their reactions through dialogue and what people are actually saying instead of showing those internal reactions because rarely do we just you know like somebody says oh xyz and you're like oh my gosh i'm so shocked like that's not what you say you have this like you know internal physical reaction and you have a thought process that happens in your head you know, when something, when news is imparted to you, you have like, and they, they happen in an instance, like it's, it's a flash. Um, and we don't even really think about it, I think, in those moments when it's happening to us in real life, but you need to spell those out for the reader on the page and say like, you know, the, the if they're given, you know, some shocking news, they're going to take a second to process that and, and think about it. They're going to feel, you know, like their stomach churning or like they'll like kind of startle back. Um, their shoulders will tense or, you know, like they'll grit their teeth or their hands will shake or, you know, something along those lines to give us a clue as to how they're reacting to this. Like it shouldn't just be like, you know, a quick rebuttal back um, in terms of like, you know, oh my gosh, like that's crazy. That's, I can't believe that happened. Like there should be more depth to it, you know? And that's the thing is that emotional depth doesn't necessarily just need to be like, you know, oh, we're wallowing in our feelings and, you know, feel bad for the orphans like Charles Dickens and so on and so forth. It should be just that you want to be in the character's head. Like that's, that's really what I mean when I talk about emotional depth is making sure that I actually understand what's going through the character's mind pretty much at any given time, whether that's through a combination of dialogue or, you know, physical internal reactions, thought processes, how they react to their surroundings and so on and so forth. Like you want to feel as if you are that character and as if you're living this experience through that character's eyes and body and so on and so forth. Um, you can't just, you know, that's and that's where you know the difference between showing and telling comes in is you know you can sit there and you can a write a lot of dialogue back and forth or you can you know say like you know oh my gosh so and so felt shocked in this moment like she couldn't believe it like that's telling you know whereas like showing those you know that stomach churning those hands shaking the 
the blood rushing to your cheeks or, you know, the dread creeping up your spine, those kinds of things, you know, like are what really tell us how the character feels. It helps us live in that moment with them. So a brilliant tweet uh, that I can't remember who said it, but I retweeted it. So check my timeline, esteemed <laughs> audience, uh, at MG Ninja. Um, but uh, somebody said that you've been told show, don't tell, but you should say experience, don't tell. Show us the full experience of the character. So, oh, my God, where was that back when I was in high school and starting this? I really could have used that advice. That's <laughs> I really love that. Yeah, because that's because it's really what it is. It's not like, you know showing the reader it's allowing them to experience the world and the character with you and, and everything that they're going through like you should feel as if you're living it in their shoes lauren time is 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 getting away from us <laughs> and i have so many questions for you because i know that you have so much knowledge that you could share with us if i just knew how to ask uh, so let me ask a couple of open-ended questions to catch what i've missed and we'll call it a day uh open-ended question that i wouldn't think to ask is what are your biggest pet peeves with manuscripts? What are the most common things that you're seeing writers do that drive you nuts? Um, yeah. So that way, anything I didn't think to ask you about, we can cover here. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> that's like, I feel like that's a really like long winded, like um, could be a very long winded answer. Um, I think that, you know, in general, there are just like certain basic craft things that, you know, I think an, an, an author can really take care of um, before the manuscript ever sees an editor's eyes. Like making sure that your dialogue is structured correctly, for instance, like that you've got a comma at the end before your dialogue tag. Um, you know, things, you know, simple things like that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, you know, <clears throat> to kind of jump into editing a manuscript and be like, oh gosh, all of the dialogue is, 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 is formatted incorrectly, you know, or that, you know, paragraph structure is completely off in, in so many different ways. Um, you know, I think that those are things that you want to consider and that you want to work on revising on your own a little bit before you bring in a professional editor, because then, you know, they're focusing on the things that actually matter, like, you know, this, this, how the story, you know, reads and how the characters, uh, whether they're fully developed and so on and so forth. You don't want them necessarily nitpicking and focusing on correcting every single dial piece of dialogue and missing comma and so on and so forth. Like there are certain things that you can catch in your own um, on a proofread through or during revisions um, before you ever engage a professional editor. Um, so I guess that's 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 one thing. Um, and uh, <laughs> sorry, you caught me a little off guard. Like I'm trying to figure out like, you know, other things that, you know, are big pet peeves of mine. Um, I guess, you know, uh, <laughs> okay, this is a very, very specific one, but I remember, you know, like occasionally I would see a book come in on submission usually from a male author who was trying to write a teenage girl, you know, like, and, and write a YI novel from the perspective of a teenage girl. And her voice would just be like, absolutely like Valley girl, like overly dramatic, like, you know, super like, Oh my gosh, everything is awful. Holy crap. Like I'm just reacting all over the place like crazy. Like that kind of thing bothers me where, where, where the author clearly hasn't researched the character that they're trying to write and that they're trying to, you know, like, they're basically applying stereotypes and that they're not, you know, like really getting into the nuances of what these characters should be and could be like all the potential that they have. Um, so that's something that sometimes will bother me if like a character is like, so very obviously a caricature or a stereotype of what this person thinks that character should be. And it's very off the mark. When I encounter that, I, I run fiction workshops and 
um, we, we go through and evaluate uh, many people who are just writing their first book or for, for the first time and we'll encounter uh, that's usually by the time you get to book number two or book number three, somebody, hopefully or your wife or the woman in your life has said, honey, don't, don't do this. <laughs> hopefully that's happened for them. Um, but I tend to try to think um, as favorably as I can, that that's not sexism though. Of course it is so much as it's just bad writing. Uh, and I feel the same way about uh, some, some uh, racism and stories that that's your intention is not bad this is a, a crime of ignorance. Let's improve your writing ability. And that's how I'm able to continue to, 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 to shake their hand and, and, and be nice to them every week. That's <laughs> how the workshop is through. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I, I tend to put that in some kind of, it's, it's bad writing, sort that out. And then, Hey, you'll learn something. You'll, you'll be broadened. Um, any other uh, pet peeves we should, we should throw on the list. Oh gosh. There was someone that I was actually just thinking about and then it completely flew out of my brain. Um, two o'clock tonight, just as you're about to drift off to sleep, it'll come back to you. <laughs> no, I heard about something you were saying, and now it completely just flew out of my brain. So, um, yeah, anyway, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's gone. These things happen, especially, uh, to, they happen to me all the time. Uh, this is a challenging format, this podcasting thing, because you have to hear me speak extemporaneously, and I prefer to write because my words are going to be far more considered. That tense is. Ted Kaczynski joke from earlier never would have made a second draft. I'd have taken that thing up, but now it's in there forever. What are you going to do? Um, well, one other thing I wanted to ask you about was reading, because I had uh, read in Stalking You that you got in trouble as a child for hiding books at dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Continuing to read every, I would think every parent's dream that you're that motivated to, to read and, and you love the books that much. Has that, has your relationship with books changed? over the years of working so closely um, with the book, I assume it's changed, but are you uh, still able to, to kick back? Okay, it's the weekend. Uh, I've done all the work I have to do. Now it's time to read something fun. Oh yeah, definitely. And I actually like have sort of a, uh, uh, um, especially when I was working for a, uh, for a traditional publisher, I had kind of like a, a method to my, my madness, if you will. Um, I would, whenever I had to read submissions for work or if I had to read a manuscript that I was working on or something like that, um, I would read it on my Kindle that my, uh, the company had supplied to me. Um, so that all of my reading would be done on the Kindle for anything that was like work related versus, you know, if I was reading for fun on my own, it would either be a print book of course, um, or, um, reading on the Nook app on my iPad. Um, so like would actually have like two completely separate devices, um, for my reading basically. Um, and that actually still is kind of how I format things. I just bought myself a, a Kindle, um, on Black Friday because there was a great sale. Yay. Um, Me too. They're fantastic. Yay. Um, so that'll be like, you know, when I'm like doing manuscript assessments, I'll do like, I'll read them on that and everything. I'll continue to read on my iPad. I actually do a lot of digital reading now, um, more than I ever expected that I would, um, even for enjoyment. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, for the most part, I'm actually able to turn off the editor brain um, to be able to enjoy books. Um, every now and again, I will come across a book that, you know, where something about it will just really niggle at me. And I'm just like, no, the world building could have been so much better if I'd been the editor on this book. Um, it's, it, it happens pretty rarely, but when it does, it just bothers me so much. And I can't get out of the editor brain. I just sit there and I think about it the entire time I'm reading it. Um, Oh gosh, and there, there was this one um, instance, I remember um, the very first time this ever happened, I won't mention what book it was, um, but I remember um, I had 
we had assigned a book for my my book club. We were reading. Um, we used to do like a YA fantasy um, and uh, historical like fantasy and historical fiction book club. And um, so there was a book that we were reading. And I started reading it for book club and I was just like, this seems so familiar, but this book just came out. There's no way I've read it before. Like what is going on right now? And I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. And I'm like, I've read this, oh, sorry. I've, I've read this book before. Like I, I, I know I've read this book before. Um, and, and it occurred to me that I had actually rejected it <laughs> about a year or two before that. And I was like, oh my God, it was the first time it had ever happened to me. It was the weirdest experience ever. Cause I kept reading it. I'm like, I swear I've read this book before. It's so familiar. It's so derivative. And then I was like, no, I rejected this book. <laughs> and I was like, about it. I think they changed the title and, and stuff, but like largely there hadn't been like I don't know. I, I would have done more editing on the book. Let's just put it that way. Um, so, like, it was just very, because it hadn't really changed much at all since I had seen it on submission and passed on it. Um, so that was a very weird experience. Well, obviously, it was a good submission to you because it was up your alley <laughs> if you ended up reading it for fun later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, always really, um, and, you know, I, and there's, there haven't been, like, a ton of instances where, um, you know, books that got away, I've gone back and actually had time to like read them when they've been published. Like I do actually want to do a little bit more of that now that um, I'm, you know, outside the industry and have a little bit more time, like going back and reading books that I like lost at auction or something like that, you know, or that you like, they went with another house or something um, and going back and being like, hmm, what did that editor do with it? Like, what could I have done better? <laughs> but I also try not to do too much of that. <laughs> How were the sales numbers? Oh, I could have got those up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not always like so much in an editor's control. You know what I mean? Like, yes, like there's, you know, a certain amount of the sales can, of course, come, you know, from the quality of the book and like, you know, all the word of mouth that comes from having a really great, fantastic book with great reviews and so on and so forth. But by the same token, like a book that gets five stars, you know, from various different, you know, um, outlets can go on to sell peanuts you know or a book that you know gets tons of terrible trade reviews can go on to sell millions of copies like it you know quality is sometimes has something to do with it but also you know there's if there's an addictive quality to your story or if you have just a really good marketing campaign you know good publicity like that's you know every bit as big of a part of promoting a book as the actual content itself you want to, of course, put the best book out there that you can. But at the end of the day, if it gets no marketing support, who's going to find it? Well, if I come to you with my project and I want to pick your brain about marketing, is that something that you offer additional help on? I mean, it's not, I, I will say it's not completely my area of expertise. There are certain things that like, you know, I know from my years working in an in-house um, pub as, as, an, as an in-house editor, um, there are certain things that I can say, hey, I know for a fact that like our marketing team would never do anything like that because it's a waste of money. You know, like there's like, for instance, for a young adult audience, Facebook advertising is a waste of your dollars because teens aren't on Facebook. Like it's just, that's, that's where it is. Like they're on Instagram, they're, you know, so a, a storygram tour or something like that is really kind of like the thing that you want to pursue um, for that younger audience, you know. Um, you know, so, th so things like that, like, you know, just general know-how, yes, I can provide some guidance in that respect, but I am by no means like a seasoned marketing guru, so. 
Lauren, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it because this is a privilege and a pleasure, and I know that I will continue talking your face off, uh, and you'll be polite and continue to talk to me and not stop me from uh, talking your horse, and then later you'll be like, why was it so long? <laughs> so I want to stop it while everybody's still having a good time. So here's my last question for you, and um, we'll call it a day. Uh, my last question um, is always some variation. Uh, if there was one bit of advice for all the authors out there who are listening, um, if there was one thing you could, one or two, however many things you want, uh, that would make their path easier, that one thing they could do to immediately improve their writing, improve their odds of being successful within publishing, however they decide to publish, what, what wisdom would you impart to them? Um, I... First of all, keep writing like that's, you know, that's that's, you know, I think the big thing is making sure that you're always continuing to hone your craft and, you know, continuing to write books. Like you said, you know, don't publish your first book. You end up publishing like your third or your fourth or your second book. You know, even if the first one doesn't pan out, continue to write because with every book that you write, you're going to become a better writer. And the other piece of advice that I would give is, you know, don't be afraid to share your work. I know that it's really scary um, to share it with people and to get that outside opinion um, because people might hate your book. Like it just, it is what it is. You know, people are going to love it or they're going to hate it, you know, and that there's going to be um, people from both sides of the spectrum when among your readership, um, you know, and I think not being afraid to listen to criticism, especially if it's offered constructively. Um, that's something that's, you know, I think really important for authors to, um, to keep in mind is, you know, that, that, you know, feedback when offered in a constructive way is really great to listen to and to weigh and to try to incorporate into your manuscript and your writing. And that every opportunity that you have to, you know, form critique partnerships and, you know, get beta readers and so on and so forth is an opportunity, you know, to improve your craft. And every opportunity to work with a professional editor as well is a really great way to improve your craft. Because I think, you know, something that we see a lot with, you know, like manuscript assessments and things like that is that, you know, ultimately a book may may not necessarily be the one that's going to get published. But working with somebody on a manuscript assessment, for instance, like to at least get a sense of like what is and isn't working in your story um, for your characters and so on, um, is something is a lesson that you can take forward as you're writing in the future um, and as you're writing more books. Um, so I think that, you know, every opportunity that you can to get constructive feedback, um, editorial guidance, people weighing in on your stories and everything like that is an opportunity that shouldn't be missed. Um, so those are just, you know, two, I guess, big pieces of advice. <laughs> Well, there you have it, esteemed audience. Uh, if you've listened to this entire interview and haven't come to the conclusion that you need to reach out to Lawrence Mosky right now uh, before uh, before there's no availability whatsoever and get her input on your book, I don't know what to tell you. This is an amazing conversation. I so appreciate you being so generous with your, uh, with your time this afternoon. Um, please remind esteemed audience where they can find you online once again. Uh, you can find me on my website at laurensmolskyliterary.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Lauren ES as Lauren Smolsky Literary on Facebook. <laughs> um, or you can email me actually at smolsky.editor at gmail.com. Well, there you go. A direct line. Reach out, esteemed audience. Make your dream happen. Uh, as always, uh, keep up with the show. Keep up with me at middlegradeninja.com. Don't forget to download your uh, free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Get yourself a copy of uh, the Book of David Chapter 1. And you don't pay money for pizza delivery. It's great. It'll be it'll be a fun time. Um, 
And uh, if you are somebody who would love to be on the show, I'd love to have you on the show, probably. Uh, reach out to me, email me through middlegradeninja.com. Let's make that happen. Uh, and that's it. Uh, Lauren, I always ask our guests to sign us off with a very specific sign-off phrase that totally justifies the ninja name of the show. Uh, and that sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Sure. Hi-ya and what have you.